it's a very different episode today. It's a crossover episode, but before I let Keith, the host of Couch Command, the podcast that we're crossing over with, take the wheel, so to speak, I'm just going to quickly give you guys the translated Chinese fiction news, the truthific news. So we have three news items today. Here's the first one. If you're bored in lockdown, here's a virtual event you can attend. It's about the author Feng Jitai and his book Faces in the Crowd that we covered on the podcast. Uh, so the event's called Tales of Old Tianjin and it's hosted by Shinran, quite a well-known author, well, in Chinese and in Chinese in translation. Shinran, if, if you're a fan of Chinese lit, I'm sure you will have heard of her. Uh, so Shinran, the Guanghua Bookshop, which is an amazing Chinese uh, bookshop in London's Chinatown, and Sinuous Books, the publisher who published uh, Faces in the Crowd. I'm going to read... No, I'm not going to read the whole about the event, because it's a massive... Uh, well, it's quite a few paragraphs. But basically, it's an online event. I believe it's free to attend. And yeah, I'll put a link to that Eventbrite page in the show notes. But please do check that out. Okay, there's the end of our first news segment. News segment number two. It's an article this time, and it's shared on a really good website, uh, Radi China. And it's from former show guest Dylan Levi King. He's a translator, so he knows what he's talking about. Uh, the headline is, What's going wrong with Chinese literature and translation? And the little sub subheading, Chinese readers are often buying entirely different books to international readers of Chinese fiction. What's going on? And basically the thing jumps off by looking at how the list of the best Chinese fiction on Doban for 2019 has only one author in common with the books that came out in English translation. And he kind of goes on to say that a lot of the Chinese lit in translation that's coming out is about 20 years behind uh, the original publications. Uh, the Chinese authors are getting put into English these days by Western publishers are mostly older authors and the only well, the book that caught the most attention this past year has been Fang Fang's Wuhan Diary, and that's obviously got attention for its political slash geopolitical uh, buzz and significance, rather than its literary merits, uh, if we're being honest. So he kind of talks about that. It's a very good read. It's very balanced. And if you have thoughts about it after reading it, you should uh, at Dylan on Twitter. Um, I'm sure if you're polite, he will respond. Last one. Now, this is something that popped up when I opened Twitter, uh, my least favorite website that I can't stop talking about. Uh, I opened it up this morning and pinging in front of my eyes was someone who'd retweeted some article uh, on UFOlogy with Chinese characteristics and the fate of Chinese socialism. I read this one in a half-awake days, frantically drinking coffee so that my brain would uh, power up fast enough to uh, get through all the kind of... Uh, it's that kind of... Um, it deals with the kind of um, amazing fusion of traditional culture and official Communist Party speak that is, I think, unique to China. And UFOs as well. I really need to reread it, but if you are looking for something surreal written in formal language, check this article out. I will put it in the show notes. Okay, that is the Truthific News done with. Uh, without further ado, bang, let's get on with this takeover. Let's listen to my interview with Keith. I'm on the show with Keith Justice Hayward. Keith, it's great to have you on. How's your day going? Pretty good, thank you. And I have with me Angus. Uh, 
we're doing kind of a, a dual podcast uh, with my podcast, The Couch Command, and his podcast. The Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast, which is more or less exactly what it sounds like. Um, we don't translate Chinese fiction, we talk about Chinese fiction that has been translated into English. And I am completely, like, my. I've only had, um, like, one, like, dance and with one author and uh, his uh, fan who did the fan fiction. So, uh, yeah, you, you are the professional on this. I, I'm pretty brand new uh, as of, like, I don't know, it, 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 it was a several-year journey to finish the books for me because I hadn't read books in years. Uh, life just kind of changed around me because... Social media uh, just devastates attention spans, mm-hmm. and then like, uh, there's so many options to do anything you want to at any moment for entertainment. Uh, the last time I was reading books was when I was riding the bu- the bus, and once I got a car, that brought into that. Um, but yeah, like I'm not sure if I want if you want me to just get going into how I got into the books or where do you want to start? I guess we should say precisely what book we're doing. So mm-hmm. we're doing the, the, slightly strangely, the third book in a trilogy, we're doing death's end, which is the third book in Leo Tzu's uh, remembrance of Earth's past trilogy, which is maybe, maybe more commonly known as the three body problem or even just three body, which is probably what we'll be calling it. Um, this episode and I have done Leo Tzu-Shin once on my own podcast before, but we just did one of his short stories. Um, I've kind of avoided doing Three Body. It felt like almost too obvious and something that a lot of podcasts have already covered. So I, it's nice to be coming at it in a kind of from you know from its ending rather than from its start. It's um, mm-hmm. hopefully we're doing something for, for the podcast listener out there who's listened to all the other Three Body Problem podcast episodes available online. Hopefully now they're now looking for something a bit more niche and they found us. That's what I'm kind of visualizing. So yeah. And I urge you if like, if you're into science fiction and like you were like I was and you're kind of like dying for something new, I don't say, don't listen to our podcast now. Don't spoil it for yourself. Like it was such a freaking journey and fun to have it unfold before me. Um, I did everything I could not to read anything about the plot synopsis and a coworker spoiled it for me. Um, but yeah, like going in completely like bare and, and raw, like not knowing what's going to happen. It, it's been one of like the most fun fictional experiences I've had in, in freaking years since like, since the matrix or maybe it's the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah. Um, yes, we are, we are going to do spoilers on this, um, on this one. So now with that out the way, Keith, can you tell us? A wee bit about yourself and what the three body problem or this book in particular, Death's End, means to you. Sure. Um, let's see. I, I came up a young boy in the city of Milwaukee. Um, you know, much like other geeks, different from other people. Um, like boredom was a thing back in my day, so I had to find ways to have fun. Um, like, around that era where I started reading more and more books, like, my best friend had moved away, so, like, finally, like, I just kind of gave in. My sister gave me Choose Your Own Adventure books, and then, like, I just started going through all these other books, and, yeah, the the magic of books, I had almost forgotten, um, that how, how much they can take you to another world, um, and then, yeah, like, I've been a science fiction fan my entire life, um, Ever since I started being curious about anything, like, my first, 
love of astronomy came from a Snoopy encyclopedia, uh, <laughs> where like I was just reading about like what planets, what the dance orbits, what like one of, like the my favorite things, which I'm not sure if it ever came to pass. But in the Snoopy book, it said that um, Pluto and Neptune were orbiting each other. So that I had the fun fact to pull on my mom and my dad that says, you know, Pluto's the farthest one out. But not after this year, which I'm not sure if that ever happened. But, yeah, it just led me up the ladder to um, the grand disappointment of Star Wars, actually, was what did it for me. Like, um, Star Wars was, like, kind of the first big thing that opened up, like, speculative fiction where... If this exists, then that exists. And then, like, you see the explosion of creativity and, and world building that happened from it. And the new ones were just, to my shock and horror, I saw just branding on the screen. I saw familiar images. And then, like, I was like, okay, F this. I need to find. And then, like, all these arguments popped up around it about, like, what science fiction was, what writing was. And people just had no appreciation or love for it. They, they, they didn't believe it existed. That, you know, writing that made sense um, was a thing. So then, like, I just had to go away from what was popular. And there was a, uh article from that said, like, Amazon offering $1 billion for three-body problem. I was like, what the hell? Because that never happens. Like, you don't get that kind of money for something no one's ever heard of. And that was, like, Chinese science fiction. Wait a second. I don't think I've ever heard of that, strangely. Like... It just made me start thinking more and more of like, okay, then how come I haven't heard of this? And what kind of fiction gets born from a society that, yeah, I guess I don't know much about them. And then, yeah, I opened those books and I got to say I was bored at first, but by death's end, it kind of changed the way I see the universe. So that was yeah, my experience. Absolutely. It did kind well, of change change my view of things as well. Um, and maybe not as as dramatically as as it changed your view of the universe and what literature can do. We'll, we'll get mm-hmm. more into that uh, later in the episode. Um, so y- y- you've talked to us a little bit about like how you got into um, the world of sci-fi and how these books kind of set you off as a reader. Um, so are the, do you, in, in your reading habits, are you generally a, a sci-fi reader when you do read books or was this, was it really a one-off with this, this trilogy? Um, oh uh, yeah. Almost. I'm pretty much sure, I'm pretty sure 100% of my reading is science has always been science fiction and in that I include fantasy. Um yeah, ever since I was a kid when it comes to finding a book and and just kind of getting away so that my mind can grow, I just loved finding um books where you could tell the writer cared top to bottom about like the entire universe you're about to walk into and then me and our friends had discussions about it and then like you could tell different kinds of writers cared about different things. Some cared about more comedy. Some were just doing a job. And yeah, so oddly enough, now that you mentioned it, <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't remember much that wasn't science fiction besides the YA novels about young boys trying to kiss tomboys um, when I was a kid. Uh, yeah, that was that's the length of like what I've read throughout right. my life. Yeah, um, it's... It occurred to me that, like, um, when thinking about sci-fi reading habits, um, do do you know who the big inspirations for Leo Tsushin were? Have you ever stumbled across this info? I think I do. Um, he had to have been influenced by uh, Isaac Asimov with the yeah. Foundation series. 
Yeah, I think the the two I always hear that uh, inspired most of China's uh, sci-fi writers, the the ones who are Leo Sishin's age and the the younger generation, they've read a lot of uh, American sci-fi authors, um, and I think the two biggies are uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov. So it's it's kind of funny that um, for you as an American, you're you're getting this heavily American influenced sci-fi, but it's coming to you, it's pinging back in a way from the other side of the world. I love that concept and idea like while i was reading i'm just like i I, you know like uh i guess i'd forgotten how much that was a part of our conversations back in the day like when we were like reading comic books and books and watching star trek together but like so where did this come from like or what influenced this person to do this and then yeah like the idea of all these ideas i've been growing up with incubating in a society that's cut off from me um was just like the further I get into the books, the more I'm like, oh my god, yeah, like this person would have a different yet similar view of how I see things, and it was just kind of fun to see, like how, uh, and uh, I'm gonna mess up his name again, even though you just told me how to say it, Sizin, 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 Leo Sizin, Leo Sizin, yeah, Sizin, yeah. If you're not bad like people will still know what you're talking about. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, reading his books and like how he and I think similarly already, but we came from different worlds. But then he started awakening my mind to like just different perspectives. Was just exactly what I needed around that time. Mm. And not to kind of lecture too much at you, but um, there are some really the, the the first sci-fi that ever appeared in China. The story of how that came about is really interesting too, and it's also like a story of um, cultural exchange. You can read a, a wee bit about this, I think, if you pick up um, Ken Liu's anthology of translated Chinese sci-fi, um, Invisible Planets. There's one or two um, intro essays by some of the authors there that go into this a bit. But um, basically, long story short, the first um, sci-fi that came into China was. Had translations of European works um, by this this guy called Lu Xun, who I've covered on the show a couple of times, and his contemporaries. But then the um, sci-fi, so there was things like H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, um, kind of like adventure stories about the wonders of science. And this was seen by um, <clears throat> some of the kind of progressive intellectuals in China at the time as a way to kind of promote science in a country that desperately needed some scientific progress uh, from from their point of view. So the even the very first Chinese sci-fi stories were kind of modeled on Western uh, or, you know, foreign influences. So um, whether you, people want to say sci-fi is a Western genre or not, that's that's one thing. But what the, the, the thing that me and you might find really interesting is in, sci-fi in China has always kind of been about some kind of dialogue with the outside world. And now it's kind of turning into a back and forth rather than a one-way dialogue. And there's other influences that came, like Russian influences later after the revolution, but I'm not really an expert about that. But if anyone's curious about that, um, Xia Jia's essay at the start of the, that Invisible Planets book is a really nice, neat little explanation of that. And I think you can read it online for free as well. It's called um, What Makes Chinese Science Fiction Chinese? I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Looking forward to that. Um, yeah, there's... It, it, when I started finding out about how um, new this era of sci-fi is in China, it blew my mind because I had never 
my entire universe has always seen sci-fi. So it kind of broke my brain to think about an entire civilization that doesn't think about sci-fi or didn't have it always in their, like every day of my life, um, somewhere on TV or, or somewhere around me, their science fiction. So I, I was just kind of thinking like, so what does a world look like without it? Or what does a mind look like without it? And then like, also I saw um, that the guy who translated the books or what he, he translated the two books, Ken Liu. Yeah. Ken Liu. Leo. Um, yeah. Like he grew up not knowing about the West and like the science fiction he read, he thought that's just what was out there. And that just blows my mind that he thought it was real. And yeah, um, I'm still blown away that, like, you know, what, what, how, what was that create in one one's mind, and how they look at the universe, and and like, why would their entire civilization not have science fiction and have to have it introduced like it was? Like, it that just uh, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, I'm. I'd probably caveat and say it's never. It's not that. It vanished in China um, under the more authoritarian um, communist periods, but rather it was um, <clears throat> only allowed to appear in certain forms. So, like in the Mao era, it was mostly used uh, as like a educational tool for children. So, like fun stories about uh, a rocket going to Mars or the Moon or something. Um, then, after Mao's death, the country kind of became a little bit more open, and um, people started writing sci-fi like proper fiction stories for enjoyment uh there but then uh, a certain point in that the 80s when the country was opening up um the government pushed back there was a i forgot what their initiative was it was uh the, yeah the anti-spiritual pollution campaign and that shut down the growth of the genre for for years and then it kind of re-emerged in the, in the 90s but there was also um we were talking before we started recording about this book I'm going to do in a future episode called Cat Country from 1930. Uh, yeah, 1930 something. And that's a, that is also a bit of an oddity because there was a period uh, before the revolution um, where not much sci-fi was being written. And I only really learned the reason for that recently. So I mentioned earlier that um, when the first sci-fi was being translated and written in China, I guess that was around just after the turn of the 20th century, so when the last dynasty was about to be overthrown. But then, fast forward a decade or two, and the production of sci-fi kind of stopped. And I could be wrong here, but I think the reason for that was that the country was heading into um, quite dire straits. They were falling into a very un unstable period with warlords on the rise, uh, the start of Japanese invasion, and I guess the literary establishment or the uh, writers or whatever kind of turned away from fantastical genres back to more realistic stuff. Um, hmm. So although it is crazy to think about a society with like no, no sci-fi, um, I'd probably say like on one hand, the first sci-fi started in China not very long after it got going in, in the West in its origin okay. point. Um, but uh, the windows where it didn't exist, it either did exist in certain uh forms that were permitted but yeah there were i guess you could say it as like a popular genre that you could read for fun yeah it just kind of there's real historical and political reasons why that didn't happen but um 
Now, if, now I'm worried I'm being like a school again, teacher again. Um, it, this brought to attention sharply, like how much I didn't know anything about China. Um, mm. So yeah, it's a, uh, and also felt almost magical even like, yeah, the experience of the getting connected to a different mind like that uh, through things that we both love um, was, uh, I don't know. I can't think of the word for it, but it was, it was amazing. It's, it's like a lot of things I find about China. It's just too big to get your head around in one sentence, you know? You yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, engaging with it as I was, I was just like, I was, I was uh, in love with like how non-Western white person centric it was. Like, I never read books like that. I never read books where um, it's not uh, an East uh, European type civilization that is the the fulcrum that will change everything. And yeah, it just. Um, this is a fantastically different path to get into science fiction. And with its multiple layers of meaning and philosophy, uh, the, the philosophy was amazing. Uh, I never mm. get to really, uh, like, philosophy is also another thing that, like, has always been a part of my universe in life. And, like, you get it somewhat um, in the fantasy books that I've read. And, you know, there's good lessons here and there. But... Um, once I had done the full trilogy of a three by problem, I felt like I had had like gone through a, a, a ginormous like philosophical lesson that has definitely influenced how I've been approaching um, astronomy, politics, and my own personal philosophy has changed because of the books. So, mm. um, so we've been talking a lot about um, being set down new roads and also making contact with new things. Um, so I think you kind of touched on this already but just so so i'm clear because I'm, I'm i'm a nosy person how did you first make contact with the three body problem like how did you learn about it and then how did you get the book into your hands so the first yeah the first contact was uh just the devastation like it, it's i i can't I'm, on my podcast uh couch command me and my friends i'm, I'm going to take them through a pretty great journey of like re reminding ourselves why we loved star wars and it's been kind of beautiful the devastation i've seen the new movies inflict upon people who once loved it mm. like they're like myself and my, my my good friends are genuinely heartbroken and in mourning for what they saw and it um something i noticed back then was like that level of destruction creates and that I could start seeing it on YouTube and whatnot and like in my own mind and heart where I was just like, look, I love this stuff and I'm not, I'm not going to stop. Um, and, and like, I guess I like, I, I, I to use, you chose to do like a, a metaphor vision of like myself going on like an intergalactic journey where I, I had to leave star Wars behind and venture off into the black and see something unknown and like, see if, what I once loved really existed. So then I kind of went on like on like a almost a, a mystery hunt where the first hint was uh, Amazon wants to buy three body pop for a billion dollars, and that made no sense. You don't spend a billion dollars on a book series that you haven't been seeing on Good Morning America or whatnot for a couple of years. So I had to find out what is this. So. um yeah, for the first time in many years, I was like, 
I ordered the book off Amazon and I made sure not to read the back of it. I just started reading through it and just like letting my mind be taken on this like weird freaking journey of like <laughs> um cultural revolution. What the hell is that? Oh my god, murder, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Wait, and then like reading the books, um, I'm just like when does the science fiction kick in? I'm massively curious as to like I have to admit I was bored at the start. But it kept me going no matter what because like a billion dollars for some guys feeling depression, um a billion dollars for a history lesson and how could aliens even factor into this? Um take it into depths where uh I've, Yi Wenji, is that her name? Uh, uh, yeah, Yeah Wenjie. Yeah Wenjie. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, seeing in the depths of that station with her, I felt it. Like this, this cold, lonely, drawn out depression of like feeling like I'm in a college library, not sure what I'm studying for, and then Bing, do not answer, do not answer. I, 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 I was shocked. And like the first hint of science fiction that like really cracked in. I'm like, what? That would be the first. Wait, why? And then yeah, it just took me down the well where I'm. I was like reading while camping, going, why are these people deflating in a VR? What is happening? <laughs> but yeah, like such a slow burn. Um, and it makes you earn it. Like. Um, well, was, like, like there's a guy who keeps on seeing the countdown on all the pictures. Mm. And one of the things I was thinking was like, oh, this is going to be like a Western bullshit where like, you know, it's shocking, but the visual, that's all you need. Like new star Wars is like the visual itself. And we're going to stop there. Mm-hmm. But then, um, I felt that the, the writer is more intelligent than that. And it took like conversations beyond the third book to figure out like, that he was seeing a projection from a sofa on. and I'm just like, oh my god! Like the the detail, the the care of like how things connect and work together. It was just it, it rewoke what I loved about fiction, science fiction. Reminded me that writing was such a skill that I once loved, and yeah, I'm I'm, I'm now rambling over the place, but um, it was it was a fun personal discovery for me where. No one else was talking about it. There wasn't news. There wasn't an out- announcement. It was just me alone clicking across the internet going, all right, let's see if I can uncover this mystery. And yeah, I got to unfold the mystery and then all of a sudden make friends with geeks in China, which like, um, I, I hope this gets uh, listened to by the geek population of China because I guess I, I've always had like a weird connection to them where like uh, I did a website called hinchinjustice.com and I had a web uh, podcast on there where we talked about live action Japanese science fiction a lot. Uh, it was called HJU Radio. And like whenever I'd look at the stats, I'm like, why are there thousands of people in China listening to me? Mm. Like, what is that connection there? And like, yeah, going down the depths of three body problem, like. They care about the weirdness and darkness as much as any of us, and it's just been fun to connect um, across the the language barrier on stuff we all love. Yeah, totally. A thing that surprised me when I moved to China, but obviously, well, obviously with hindsight, it shouldn't have been surprising, was how much like Japanophilia there is there, at least for like pop pop culture wise. Um, they they consume quite a lot of 
stuff like that in China. And I had of, no idea. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it, you wouldn't think until you until you know, and then once you know, you're like, oh yeah, of course, makes so much sense. Um, but yeah, the thing about seeing the stats from China is that's amusing because when I've the place I host this podcast now is Podbean. I used to use SoundCloud, and I believe they're both blocked inside China, which hmm. means anyone accessing, uh, well, listening to the podcast from the inside the PRC is doing it with a VPN, which means they'll be showing up in my stats as being from another country. So they've always kind of been like an invisible part of the, the listening stats. So cool. I would never know, like probably most of them are connecting to servers in like Japan Korea or America, probably mostly America um, or, or Hong Kong even. And I would just be guessing how many of these uh, listeners were, were from China. But actually there's a thing I can plug here. Um, you might find this interesting if you want to um, make more um, sci-fi friends uh, across the world or from inside China um, I and I, I've had this one of the people from this organization on as a guest on the show before, and we looked at Folding Beijing by Ha Jingfang. Um, <clears throat> I attend the meetings of this uh, group called the London Chinese Sci-Fi Group, and ever since lockdown, their meetings have been virtual, which is why I've been able to attend because I'm not in London. Um, but every month or so, they do like a sort of a reading group book club thing on a Chinese sci-fi short story. It's always been a short story in the times I've um, virtually attended. But recently they started having authors on as guests. So just um, four hours before I got on the line with you, Keith, I was in a Zoom call with um, a load of uh, nerds, <laughs> Chinese sci-fi <laughs> loving nerds from around the world. Um, plenty of them from China or the Chinese diaspora. But the um, uh, the special guest was Bao Shu, the author of Redemption of Time. I was just talking to him a few hours ago. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I can't even. I I, I, I love um, how mysterious he is to me. I, I have no idea what he looks like. I, mm. And Bao Shu, that's not his real name, right? Yeah, that's his pen name. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine what that would be like. Does he speak English? He's got really good English. He's um, out of all the guests, like the Chinese sci-fi writers they've had um, attending. He's been the only one who could like communicate entirely in English. Everyone else has Holy. been a little bit bilingual or speaking in Chinese, and then the host uh, Guanzhao has been like translating, interpreting. Sorry, interpreting. His book Redemption of Time was fire. Oh my god! Yeah. Um, I was expecting Three Body Problem Light, which it kind of was, um, but I. Like uh, it was, it was fun. Um, when we joined, I joined the three body problem group that we have on Facebook, uh, and like just seeing um other uh, Chinese geek fan reactions, uh, where one guy uh, took one picture of him holding it, and the next picture was the book in the trash. Um, <laughs> just <laughs> I was dying laughing, and I can see why. Like it, it goes away from the hard science and becomes more of a Green Lantern story. Mm. But I had so much fun with it, and it made me better understand this thing where people say um, uh, opposites are the same, and they create each other. And the way he explained like the dimensional fracturing of the universe made me think about how, yes, you know, we're all part of the same tapestry, and then like the ripples create other, you know, dimensions underneath it, such as like. Um, once again, I, I, sorry to keep bringing it up. The destruction of Star Wars created this 
deep love for it I've never seen happen before. So yeah, Bao Shu, like I would, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm intimidated to ever cross his path. Mm. Um, that was the other thing I was meaning to say. Um, so you've mentioned plenty times that um, feeling that you'd lost Star Wars set you down looking for something to kind of fill the hole or mm-hmm. it, or maybe that's the wrong way of looking at it, but it, it left you looking for something. And the thing you found was a, another trilogy, Three Body. And I was just thinking like out of films uh, as an individual and thinking about like pop culture in general, there's plenty of like one-off novels and one-off films I've enjoyed. And the, you know, there's plenty of one-off novels and one-off films that lots of people love and are even cult favorites. But there's something about series, maybe especially mm-hmm. trilogies, and especially ones that exist across lots of different media, like the one that springs immediately to mind, Harry Potter. They've got some magic to them that like a one-off could just never have. So when you say that like you had this uh, losing Star Wars wasn't just like losing three individual films, it was like losing something that made you need a replacement, and then the replacement you found was another trilogy. It doesn't, like, from, like, trying to look at it rationally, it's, it doesn't seem like it would make sense, but on a non-rational level, it's like, yes, of course, of course you would find another trilogy, because trilogies are, like, the magic form. Yeah, there's, like, a, I've been, like, I've been on, like, a journey still about, like, the, the heart and, like, the source of creativity and what makes these things that last. Um... Because I like there's like uh there's there's movies like the the fifth element and then like you know when it came out people were like it's kinda like Star Wars and I'm like no it's not. Um <laughs> it's like I don't see I'm trying to put my finger on what is it that people don't get or what is it that happens where like you do Star Wars and like you can't help but think about the entire world of it. Like one movie had us thinking about it for the rest of our lives where if this, then that, and then like, it, it just builds upon itself. And like, um, that's, that was the fun of it. Like it wasn't always like Luke Skywalker wasn't the greatest. Uh, Luke Skywalker was a dude who, as a result of like spaceships existing, uh, teachers existing, he grew into a Jedi and just like a working world means so much. So then, like, when, like, the toxic um, uh, conversation happened around it, which was, like, the defenders of it, which people don't talk enough about, it was horrific. Um, the the fun geek conversations where me and my friends talk about, like, the building blocks and the puzzle pieces of what makes a world fell away to you say you like it if you're a good person. And then manipulating the conversations around it so that you weren't talking about the pieces but making sure you form your opinion in a way that says you like it to prove your virtue mm-hmm. and then and, and like they devastated like I, I try to talk about like no like that that's not how things work that's not how the speed of a star destroyer works that's not how training works what's going on here and like they're all like there's, there's like these memes like none of that ever existed like you you thinking your world building these pieces connecting that's all just for children and it never existed and blah 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 and like just like just people and memes are just slamming on that and i was like i don't believe i I think everyone's wrong i think that the majority of people are wrong and i went to seek it out um someplace where there wasn't a conversation that dictated what you had to feel about it or think about it 
And then, yeah, like, through the three-body problem universe, once it gets going, because of this, this exists. And then you you can't stop thinking about how their universe works of, like, uh, being hidden, uh, the limitations of the speed of light and what problems and horrors that can cause, how it can affect you psychologically. And then uh, I hit that tripped over an insight while I was reading it where like, oh, wow, wait a second. This hits more layers than I'm usually used to. Like the perception of teaching, like you're, you're standing on a planet and suddenly it's on fire and you don't know why. That metaphor just applies to everything and how much it taught me about like my own life, like tragedies that have hit me hard and they seem to have come out of nowhere. And but then, like, yeah, if you look up at the sky and you see, like, a distant star that you've never seen before, um, if you understand how the world works, you start understanding, like, where tragedies come from, why you should be prepared for them, and and how some someday, eventually, one will be beyond your imagination. And, uh, yeah, I just learned so much from those books. So, uh, yeah, once again, I'm not sure if I'm rambling uh, directionlessly or not, but, yeah. Um, no, it, it shows that the things affected you, and that's the most important thing a, a book can do to someone. I, I think um, I can definitely. Um, I I've never been a huge. I've never. I've, what can I? What am I trying to say? I've never been incredibly so so invested in like a, the world of a fantasy novel that I would get as. Uh, uh, sorry, let me start again. How can I say this? Yeah, while while I've never been um, as kind of into a fan culture that it could, uh, like, that if it became turbulent it would throw me off. I've never mm-hmm. never been like that, but I can I can feel some of your frustrations about things you enjoy being wrapped up in culture wars. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people listening know exactly what you mean. But and and these things dominate the entire way that a work of art or media is. Is framed, and if you try and express a view or an opinion that is completely technical and isn't on one side of the culture war, you'll be dismissed and shoved over to one side. And yeah, it's it's quite incredibly like sad to see conversations get reduced to like one team versus the other, and the actual enjoyment yeah. of the the work is is sidelined. It, it's sad. It was I had never seen anything like it before. Actually, um, it was. Uh, part of my fun fiction, uh, not fun fiction, but uh, the metaphor of how I was engaging with it, where um, my conversations that uh, I'll reveal were um, almost m- martial art. Uh, when, like, the first uh, wave of, like, just devastating conversations, I had just, like, I got just attacked, like, over and over on Facebook about, like, you know, my stance on, like, what I think of women and it's, I've never been questioned on it before because it's, you know, it's, it should be obvious everyone's equal. But, like, it, it just came like a tidal wave, and, like, I was confused. So then, like, um, you know, all the lessons I've learned from martial arts was, like, you do a strike to see the person's soul and and how they block. And then you work through that like a riddle to figure out, like, what is the answer to this conversation? So then like, if there would be times where I started noticing, like, you know, I get to the point where no, like Star Wars is always equal. Like uh, Leia 
was leader of the team. Wait, you don't notice that? You don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I was sitting around and yeah, I just it, it eventually just kind of woke up that the level of where I engage on fiction and care about the details and how things interact and interlace. Um, apparently, lots of people don't do that at all. Um, they just use it as a medium to express their um, moral standing mm-hmm. versus like the technique of what it takes to make a, a story that tells a lesson in interconnecting scenes that make sense to make a bigger picture so that you continue to think and care about it beyond once it's over. Like the last Jedi um, directed by one of my favorite writers and directors of all time was garbage. I couldn't believe it. Like, and it made me question, wait, do all writers fake it this hard? And then, yeah, then it just like, uh, through Susan Liu, Leo, I always fuck it up. Um, Lou, and Leo, I hope it's I okay to curse. Lou, Leo, both, they should both be all right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he reminded me like, no, uh, you did not. It was not an illusion. Oh, I thought you were talking about someone called Susan. Sorry. Yeah. Susan Liu. No, no. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was a it was a Mr. Miyagi class I went through through body problem, where um, you're waxing on and waxing off and like you're doing it for a long time is kind of I, don't know, I got a little bored with like um, this virtual world that didn't make sense until you get to the, the final lesson of this is what you've been learning all this time the power of perspective I'm like oh my god and then. It just exponentially grew and turned into a prism of insights while reading the book. And Baoshu slammed the spike home with his final book and uh, lessons on endings. So, yeah. Mm. What a freaking journey. Yeah. Um, but we'll get on to a little bit more about um, what what I'm about to mention might mean uh, later in the episode. But what you were saying about um, the futility of trying to engage in some of those conversations reminds me a lot about uh, of the bit in um, Three Body you mentioned where Ye Wenji receives that message that says, just don't respond, don't respond. And I have to think, like, whenever I'm sitting on Twitter, seeing all the, you know, various people, the various shades of opinion with all their hot takes, and the little um, little bit of my brain that wants the dopamine hit and to get likes or to shake my little virtual fist is itching to type up my own grumpy, snarky opinion, and I remember, like, mm-hmm. well, what what purpose will this serve? It would obvi- it would be so much better for me and everyone else involved if I just go and read and enjoy something instead of um, broadcasting my reactions, not Location. even like thoughts, but just reactions across the internet. It, it doesn't. No I good. went through the same thing uh, once. I finally learned about the dark forest nature of the universe. It made me think about the internet, um, mm. how. Uh, it's in the three body problem universe. It's impossible to it's, it's it's impossible to really connect with someone so distant from you because of like um, each civilization gets formed by their own stars. Um, the way Earth we 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 know there's a, a a sun rising and falling at the same hours every day, and that causes more of like a a belief system of that 
of rising and falling, but the sun will always come out versus like another civilization who knows unpredictable chaos and what kind of a person or civilization that can create. And then like, you just don't know, like from the distance of, of, of the of speed of light or the distance of like the internet, like the person uh, saying that um, I don't like Ray because she's woman. This person has grown up underneath devastating stars and gravity that have like ravaged their life so that they do see the world like that. Like that's how they engage. That's how they try to survive. But that does. And like, then I try to interact with that person from like, you know, women and men being equal has always been, is, is, it's not even like a debate for me. Uh, my sister beat that into me until I cried. <laughs> um, so it's just never been a question. So like the answer is always there, but yeah, like the distance of light speed, the distance of a, of a person from another person, a mind to another mind, mm-hmm. a planet to another planet. Like you will never know what it's like to grow up underneath that person's star. Mm-hmm. And also if you reveal your location to people who are in situations different than yours, they will freaking try to destroy you because they feel like the resources of ideas are finite mm-hmm. and they feel panic need to smash yours down to make sure that they don't lose any ground without giving thought of who they're attacking. So yeah, mm-hmm. like uh, I, I, while I was going through it, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I was like, why are people doing this? Why is the world a horrific place like this right now? And then, yeah, the, the three body problem books gave me the, the Kung Fu philosophy lesson of like, on top of the mountain, this is what you're encountering, Keith. This is how it happens, and this is kind of how you can handle it. So, yeah, it just taught me about interacting with humanity, even. Yeah, it's a funny kind of contradiction, because in, in these books and have present this worldview that is so pessimistic about different groups ever being able to understand each other and cooperate. It's generally very pessimistic about any positive things coming out of interactions between you and the other, you and the the thing or person who's different, and yet the it's contradicted by the fact that the series is such a success story in cultural exchange. It's um, mm-hmm. it's what's brought Chinese sci-fi to the West. So we we might get more into this sort of stuff later, but I think we should probably move on with our our chat onto like the sp- the spoiler zone um, and talk a little bit about the series as a whole, just so it's clear um, what we're talking about, and that should enable us to get into some of the other themes. So I'm going to um, attempt to summarize the whole trilogy here, and if you think I've missed anything key, uh, please jump in at the end or even as I'm I'm going through. And yeah, obviously, if, if you guys are listening and you don't want anything spoiled, this is the time to to find another <laughs> find another podcast because <laughs> we're about to spoil the whole thing. But yeah, um, so we start off in the Cultural Revolution. We're following a young lady called Ye Wenjia, and she um, is assigned to a station um, that the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army, is running. And they are trying to broadcast their message into space so that basically Maoism will be the first uh, human hmm, human ideology that reaches uh, alien life. And she's sitting at her desk. She's feeling very dispirited. 
uh, and she receives a message from another civilization. She's warned not to respond to them by the, the message she's receiving, but she does, and that triggers this alien civilization, the Trisolarans, to basically come for Earth because their own world is uninhabitable, long story short. And it's we we find out that in the present day there's a like a conspiracy. There's a group of humans who are working in secret with the Trisolarans, preparing the world for the take their takeover. And that conspiracy is overturned, and that's the end of book one. In book two, hum- humanity's got about five hundred years, I think, to get ready. I think it's four hundred. Four hundred. Split hairs. Oh well, please do, please do. Um, they've got four hundred years to get ready, and they they build a great big fleet. The fleet is wrecked in one of the most amazing set piece <laughs> things anyone's ever going to read, and it'll be interesting to see um, when this thing gets made on Netflix how they do that, if it'll be um, a success or not. But anyway, um, the human fleet gets wrecked. It looks like it's game over, but the character we we're following in book two, whose name is uh, Loa G, he um, figures out this way the universe works that Leo Sishin has devised called the Dark Forest Theory, where basically um, you must not let any civilization anywhere in the galaxy know where you are because they will take you out immediately so that you don't become a threat later. And he uses the threat of broadcasting the location of the Trisolaran fleet and Earth as sort of like a mutually assured destruction. It's called like a deterrence system or something. Mm-hmm. And that saves Earth for the time being. Then we get to book three, and this is <laughs> this is where the series, which has already got pretty complicated, just exponentially gets bigger. And this is where you're probably going to need to help me out. Um, right. In fact, do you want to take over here? Because I think I'm going to mess it up. I will definitely mess it up. Um, like, uh, yeah, I, I'll definitely be messing it up. So I, I can I can try to follow along with you. Like my brain says that um, it starts with uh, a young lady in like the Roman era or something like that. Oh yeah, the fall um, of Constantinople. Um, the Turks, the Turkish Ottoman Turks, are coming to uh, destroy the very last remnant of um, what was once the Roman Empire. But she knows of uh, was it dimensional fractures that allow her to cast what she feels are spells, but what she's just doing is actually just affecting. The normal universe is always there, but mm. through different places that people don't know are there. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, then it leads on to Tian Ming. Yep. Did I say his name right? Yep. Yun Tian Ming. God bless his heart. Uh, him and his lovable woman, uh, but then he gets hit with a terminal disease. Uh, the woman comes back around to him and says, yeah, you're dying. So, and he's like, oh my God, she loves me. He's like, no, can I use your brain? And he's, he's like, ah. <laughs> Ah, oh, fine, fuck it. Throw my brain <laughs> at some aliens. And they do. And then this connect creates like a different connection as they start to understand or try to understand our fiction and, and our ways of thinking and, and creation. Uh, that if we don't listen to Baoshu, makes it so that their civilization starts creating multi-dimensional fiction that that comes back to us um and now i'm getting lost so where would you go next in the story um yeah so we have like a period of cultural exchange between the trisolarans and earth it's like a golden age um and maybe something that gives us an idea of how liu thinks 
um, mankind becomes very kind of effete. Men become more feminine. That's mm-hmm. I think that's a big insight into how his mind works. And basically, humanity things are too easy for humanity. We get lax. Um, Logi uh, passes on the torch as the guy who has like his finger on the proverbial deterrence uh, button to this young hey, lady. And I thought it was interesting. They yeah. he turns Logi into. A stereotypical, or from my point of view, stereotypical kung fu looking master. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Fu Manchu mustache and like robes. I'm like, okay, I I love that he did this because it seems to reveal the image of how he knows I see Chinese kick ass people. Mm. Um, and then because it doesn't seem like something Lo G would actually do. Yeah, uh, he's such a regular guy. Yeah, and then he turns into like a freaking kung fu silent master as he gives of his life away to do a stare off against an alien race saying i'll kill us both i'll fucking do it mm-hmm. yeah he's my favorite character in the series and Same. that's one reason it's not the only reason but the way that um that trope that the opposition used for like his final stage of his arc was yeah i didn't see it coming but it made total sense i was a big fan especially his death scene that was very cool yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it I I imagined it for. Do you ever see like a? There's a George Clooney movie, The Perfect Storm. Uh, I watched it and I fell asleep because I was really tired <laughs> and it was quite a dark I, I could film. See, I, I can see why. Um, but like at the end of it, uh, George Clooney like he he gets uh, the people he wants to out of the boat as like this gigantic storm that engulfs like his entire universe is coming to destroy him and like uh, his friend gets away. But he just says, nope, I'm going back into my boat, and this is the end for me. I'm okay with this. And that's why I saw Loji doing on Pluto. Mm-hmm. Like, nope, I'm going back into my boat. This is the end for me. I'm okay with this. And, like, I liked his, like, final words. I don't think I'm missing much. <laughs> like, cool. Yeah. So cool. Well, yeah, he hands the uh, the, the the sword, um, the switch that can allow the entire universe to know the location of us and of Trisolaria. He hands it over to a woman who's kind and good, and unfortunately, because of that, she has the common sense not to kill two civilizations. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the Trisolarians attack right away, I think, right? Yeah, they, they've they almost been, like, anticipating this happening, and they um, they activate the... I guess we haven't talked about the Sophons. I think they use the Sophons right away, so this kind of remote control crazy hard sci-fi invisible to the human eye thing to just wreck everything on earth and even no, though no, no. They, no. They, they use droplets droplets sure. right okay the droplets yeah. turned and like they're like haha got you boom smashed just everything we needed to protect ourselves and yeah yeah if not for an uh was it uh zhang behai uh zhang behai Zhang Beihai. Yeah, Zhang. Cool. Um, yeah, uh, thanks to the humans that he saved out in the black who've learned about the the, the uh, betrayal, uh, both our locations got revealed, and the next step was just huge. Like, okay, and now I'm going to describe to you what civilization looks like when we don't live on Earth anymore. You're like, what? Mm. Um, yeah, the lessons of long-term thinking uh were amazing in this and how like he took us on that journey um it reminds me of like i'm not sure where i saw it 
but like uh, China and the West have different takes on like the mythology of the flood and um, how uh, the flood for the West it, it's we're hit by God. Uh, we better take it until he says it's over, and you just have to um, survive. Which mm. is kind of how Westerners kind of see tragedies. In China, on the other hand, I hear their story went as uh, all the people just worked together over like generations, knowing that their generation is not going to get seen in the flood, but they're going to start the the means and processes of working the land and the sky itself to eventually grow themselves out of the flood through generations of work, which I thought was amazing. And yeah, through stacked generations of work and thought, but not enough thought. Um, we put ourselves behind Jupiter to survive a nuclear, uh, to survive a supernova blast from the sun, which I love that idea. And I hope that uh, Leo did enough research to know that that's actually a thing that could happen. Like, could we survive a, a Nova behind Jupiter? Oh, I have no idea. But yeah, uh, we takes us to the bunker era where humanity has left Earth. Um, we create all these cool kick-ass uh, space stations. One that will allow you to stand on the roof of it and just watch Europa, the moon, fly above your head. Um, just magnificent things. Uh there's there's a thing that I've heard people have a problem with, like how men and women are portrayed in the book. Mm. Um, men are strong and women are. Uh, I don't think he's saying they're weak. I think he's saying that there's a kindness. And what I saw, and like what I try to tell people is that like what I read wasn't a a commentary of like what men and women are supposed to be. Um, it was a commentary of like how we're the same, like how we will always need the balance and the the cooperation of what we both see, what we see as masculine and feminine to survive. Mm-hmm. Like you need kindness, you need vicious strength to keep going on. And it wasn't that uh, the next sword holder, uh, what's her name? Uh, Chung Shin. Chung Shin. Oh man, I've been saying that wrong. Um, it's not that she's weak, it's she's, got what should be what I hope is the normal human heart of compassion. And um, she's not able to do the vicious thing that was needed. But yeah, uh, she's just another reflection of like, which hopefully is in all of us. Mm. Um, But then after that, she decides to kill the light speed program, which dooms us all. Uh, And then, yeah, like that one chapter hits. Me and our friends love that chapter where Singer appears because it's just yeah. a bunch of garbled crap. Like you're like, wait, what sentence did I read here? Why is nothing make sense? And then like, God bless their skill of writing. Like it was just like a, a bunch of babbling garbled nonsense that slowly crystallizes into the vision of oh my god, another alien civilization. Oh my god. Oh, and then like uh, they start using terms that. You know, you can translate yourself about like, oh, this place has shadow corners. I'm like, <gasps> like, I didn't see, I, no fiction does this that, except for Arthur C. Clarke, who did this in ah, something, some other book, whatever, I can't remember, Children or something. But yeah, no book says, uh, when I said I was going to kill all of humanity, I meant it. Mm. And he throws that two-dimensional foil at us, 
and it starts expanding and like yeah the description of the destruction of our solar system and no turning back and like i loved how much he seemed to know how in depth of science fiction i think because like usually um a writer like arthur c Clarke um does the vanishing of the of the solar system and that's it and there's not much more to think about but like the 2d foil and like how it turned the solar system into a, a two-dimensional, beautiful, exact painting of what would happen if you two-dimensionalized all of our particles and everything about us. Um, then, like, yeah, I, I've I've always thought about this kind of thing. Actually, like, if you have infinity and like the superpowers of all of the universe, eventually some civilization is going to come across this and reconstitute it, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, he. he he thought beyond my imagination. He's like, no, Keith. Thought of that. <laughs> All you're seeing is radiation. It's vaporized, Keith. There's no coming back from this. I'm like, what? You even knew my daydream? Oh, crap. Oh, my God. It's all gone. I think there's Ugh. a few things in... Um, there's so much going on in Death's End. It's probably impossible to catch it all trying to mm-hmm. go by your memory. I, I guess there's a couple things um, we should talk about now so that we can use them for discussions later. One mm-hmm. is um, the warnings that we get from Yun Tiang Ming and his use of um, stories about paintings. Um, how well do you remember those? I've... I have a hard time remembering them. And also, while I was trying to dig through several layers of like understanding the meaning, I didn't get it. Um, uh, through a conversation later with friends, I started understanding more but I didn't get that that was a warning or why he would warn that such a thing like a 2D foil exists. Mm. And I guess we should explain how the, the 2D foil comes about. So when the Trisolarian droplets take out Earth, all of humanity's herded into Australia and they basically have to live out like a oh, yeah. dark age. That's one of the bits of the book where I was like, fucking hell. This is, um, <laughs> People start eating each other? Yeah. Like, holy shit, dude. Yeah, it's so very dark. And I, I can't... This is the bit where I might need your help. How exactly the humans managed to get themselves out of that situation. Is so, um, Zhang Beihai manages to broadcast the location of the Trisolaran fleet, and then it I don't gets, think it's Zhang Beihai. It's not Zhang Beihai. Uh, I think Zhang Beihai has been vaporized by that point. Right. It is uh, another guy whose name I can't remember, oh, yeah, um, who it becomes the new leader of the fleet. Uh, they all do that hologram button where they're all voting yes or no, we're going to do this. And then that, that beautiful scene where it's one last vote that can say, all right, I'm doing this. And then like, like all these people just put their hand on top of his. So that's all these people together saying, we're all going to hell together. And they all press the button. And once that signal goes out, um, everything about Trisolaria, uh, and earth and Australia, they're like, Oh shit, it's over. Yeah, because it's over. Yeah, because the fleet gets hit just just as the, they basically prove the theory. I guess it's been proved bef- correct before, but this time they prove it with lethal effect. They broadcast uh, the location of the fleet, and that all all of a sudden, somehow the fleet gets taken out by an unseen. Um, no, no, other, no, um, no, no. So, like, what happens is like uh, we broadcast the location of Trisolaria. The moment that happens, they bug out. They take their droplets oh, and get right. the fuck out of our right. solar system altogether. 
leave us alone. We're not sure if they're still Sophons here, but they're likely not because they don't have as cra- they aren't as crazy as humans. They're pretty <laughs> uh, they're pretty straightforward. They're like the math happened here. This place is gone, obliterated in a moment of time. So now it's our time to, for us to take our our two fleets and just turn out into the black and try to find another place. We don't know. Like one of the fleets gets destroyed. We don't know what by what though. Right. Like they just they ran across something that took them out. Right. Um. But the other one survives to the end of the universe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which we'll get to the very very end as well later in the episode. Um. So. It seems like every one of these questions has the potential to go on forever. Here's another one that might do that. Um, mm-hmm. We've maybe touched on this a wee bit, but what were your expectations before picking up book one? And were any of those expectations proven correct by the end of book three, or had they all been completely blown out of the water? Blown out of the water? I had no expectations going in. I expected to read something bland and boring, and the reason why... It was so popular is because like it was science fiction that like normies could get right. and like I was my nose high in the air. So I expected to read something very boring and limited in imagination so that it could just stay within the parameters of like how people normally see the universe. And then by death's end, it was just like, um, yeah, it, it was like, Starting at the beginning of Mr. Miyagi teaching you how to sand the floor, and then by the end of it, I am the bride and Kill Bill. <laughs> good answer. Um, so here's another question, which we've kind of touched on before, but it would be good to go all the way here. Um, so th- the three-body problem, uh, and in particular the dark forest theory, so the idea that... Um, it's kill or be killed in the universe, and that's because no, you know, no any life that will be able to form can only guarantee its survival by taking out any other life it, it discovers. That's the three body. Uh, sorry, that's the dark forest theory in a nutshell, and that became like a, a talking point in the Chinese business world. The tech and business world got very into three body problem and tried to use it as a guide for economics and business and all these other sorts of things, regardless of how advisable that might be or not, or, and how much of a, like a view, a complete view of human nature it would be. Um, I, I've been, unfortunately, the book unveiled, the book series unveiled for me the, the dark depths of human nature. Mm. Like, um, when there is uh, a limit of resources... Um, the only thing keeping us good is, like, the levels of thought that we've been taught. Like, when it comes, like, like, I've noticed a lot, like, about politics and business now is that, like, they are are, are another dimensional level that we don't usually operate on, Mm. where if they don't do a certain thing of total elimination, then someone else will eliminate them. Um, yeah. I don't think it's a good way to go about things on a humanitarian scale, but if you want to succeed, then yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I can, it's definitely, I think, like in my own country, in, in the UK, it's, it certainly holds out where if you if you want to achieve something more than just absolute 
base greed, you still have to be operating on a kind of a cynical or highly compromised way of doing things. This is my own sort of lefty views here, colouring what I'm saying. But if you look at the last successful um, left-wing politician in, in the UK, it was Tony Blair. And he was a guy who was operating... What can I say? Um, he wasn't uh, he wasn't an idealist. He might have been presenting himself as such, but he was much more like a Zhang Beihai than a, a Chung Shin. He was... How can nice. I say this? Um, um, hmm, how can I? How can I express this? Um, I have a big word that I'm not sure if I'm going to use right, so I'm going to Google it first. Um, uh, like I, I guess, like a highly pragmatic. Um, boom! That's exactly yeah, the word I'm looking at. Highly, yeah, pragmatic, pragmatism, opportunistic. Yeah, and I guess I'm. Yeah, I, I I don't know if I, what I think of trying to operate completely pragmatically. I was certainly not really raised to be pragmatic. I was raised to be very idealistic. Um, so mm-hmm. I think I don't. I think when you operate as kind of in a completely from a, in a if you operate in a completely pragmatic frame of mind like Tony Blair, I think you do end up. It, it will lead you down very nasty paths, like when we. Um, he led the UK into the Iraq war um, with the US, which he did not have to do, where mm-hmm. like just the idea that being pragmatic is completely value-free, it won't take you anywhere good or bad, it will just help you win. I, I don't think that's completely true, but I do think the odd <sighs> splash of cold water waking you up from pure idealism is, is pretty healthy, and I think I got that from Three Body. I don't think I have yeah. nearly as dark a worldview as Leo Sashin, but I think reading the books gives me something I wouldn't otherwise have because I'm kind of inclined in the other direction. I want to be inclined in the other direction. I like my, my entire life has been idealistic. Um, but from the lessons of the book and watching how the world has worked, like pragmatism, I think is the dark path that leaders need to walk to get us to places where we can be ideal. Like, mm. Uh, the pragmatism is the uh, thing that'll get you through unstable eras. Like right. when things are at their chaotic and evil is reigning and, you know, like the the other side, whatever, whatever I consider the other side, like in my country of America, um, they don't give a shit about playing fair right. or or mm. giving up things because it's right or wrong. They're doing the things they can based on the rules that they are provided. And if they can bend them and break them, they will. And they do keep winning. Yeah. Um, versus the people on my side who work within logic, kindness, and as a result get punked hard <laughs> by the rules that they don't want to be endorsing. So from what I've been able to see, like, yeah, you unfortunately – um, we want to get to the point where, uh, people like, uh, Ching San, Ching San, uh, um, Cheng Xin, Cheng Xin. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> we want to get to a point where people like her thrive and can lead our hearts to helping everyone. But to get there, sometimes you need, uh, what was the white guy? Wade. Mm. Sometimes you need the, the ruthless calculation. I, yeah, I don't want that to be the truth. Like, that's not how I want the world to be. Mm. But it's true. Like, 
there are dark things, systems, people who work in ways that don't care about my idealism. And to get back to the, like where we can start um, really valuing ideal, uh, being idealistic, you have to have pragmatism to sometimes work us through the worst parts. Yeah, this is reminding me of uh, something I, I meant to bring up earlier when we were talking about Chung Shin and her uh, decision not to, well, to give up the, the, to not press the button, basically, to do the idealistic thing and um, refuse to destroy Earth and the Trisolarans. Um, so that, I had a episode quite a way back now where we were looking at um, Vagabonds by Hao Jingfang, not anything by Liu Cixin, but my guest was Ken Liu. So I posted on uh, the, the Facebook group that we, we met in, actually, the Three Body Facebook group. I said, Ken Liu's going to be on my podcast pretty soon. Does anyone have a question for him? And someone asked a question about Chung Shin because it's so contentious among uh, the readers and, and the fans and stuff. And I think Ken Liu is, he's quite uh, a idealist himself, let's say. So his answer was, was interesting. He said um, in his opinion, and he thinks in Liu Cixin's opinion, the message that we should take from what Chung Shin did is that we should do the right thing, even if it doesn't result in us winning. So mm-hmm. things are things are right or wrong regardless of the consequences, um, which is a philosophical position, which would be the topic of a whole other podcast. But um, it's an interesting thing because, like, I I think his his point of view is like very it's a very wholesome one. There's a lot you can take away from it, and I I didn't I didn't start an argument over that on the episode, but I did think I thought about that over the next few days, and I was like, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not so sure. Um, I, I probably yep. lean a little bit more towards the consequences, uh, consequentialist, the opposite position, where the consequences can yeah, make like, a thing right or wrong. I want to be, yeah, um, the person I am and want to be the way I want the world to be, I agree with what he's saying. But if that leads to you, your loved ones, your family, your entire everything not existing anymore, then you don't get to go on to teach kindness and love and whatnot. Mm. Like doing things that are right, even if that means your end and the obliteration of everything that you feel is right. Like then you don't get to have that grow more. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 It's um, you're taking the future into account rather than just like an individual action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Three by problem fucked me up pretty bad. Mm. Yeah, it's the thing. It's um, you know, it's a really successful piece of like deep sci-fi because um, as well as being hard sci-fi and dealing with like loads of scientific concepts, it does whether or not you agree with the moral positions it's taking, it at least gets you thinking about these really complicated, um, well, more decisions that were made, moral dilemmas. But then you get like we're doing now, it it leads you pretty easily into thinking about like frameworks for evaluating whether something was right or wrong, you know, without, without preaching at you too much, which is the sign of a a job well done by the author. Yeah. Um, such as like the, the philosophy of the free body problem itself, like, um, and how much I've been noticing how the system is all everywhere. Um, like, you know, you got two, you got two bodies and then, that creates a predictable system. You add one or more. All you do is add one more, and now you have an unpredictable system 
of um, destructive chaos, which made me think about how our our, uh, our voting system works. Like, um, and like I, I think about it in like terms of like planetary orbits. So, I used to be of the we need more than two parties. That's going to save the world. And then like I learned the math of like what the third party system does. The third party in ours doesn't really change up um our orbit much as much as like uh the third party is a comet catcher is that does that make sense to you can you explain that a bit more so um to make our solar system uh stable and so earth has a chance we have jupiter which is a gigantic gravity well that attracts comets and other bombardment things it it, it absorbs uh attacks of, of like, you know, uh, celestial bodies. Um, and I think the third party that we have in our voting system, it absorbs math, it absorbs those votes. Mm. Like they, they create these secondary parties, um, so that people throw away their votes and it siphons away numbers away from to two big voting parties. Um, so then you have two big systems that polarize each other and creates a stable system of being kind of gravitationally going back and forth, but stays in between and keeps us going further. So then like, I guess what the danger could be is if you add a, a true third party to that voting system, then like if you have a fool like Trump can win, then who knows who could win? Like, if you had more actual viable options for humanity to choose, we chose a reality TV star because humanity, broad systems, were not that smart and we like candy. Mm. Um, so, like, yeah, all you have to do is add a true, actual murderous warmonger that offers enough people enough candy. And next thing you know, instead of us being mad at, like, like the three big things, like instead of being mad about systemic racism and abortion and that being like the only things we argue about over and over again, next thing we know, maybe we do stuff to have worry about like, um, like freaking organized murder rates. Mm. And yeah, like the, yeah, I just started thinking like because the, the three body problem system of how two bodies stabilize each other, add another element and you don't know what could happen. Yeah, it just it's changed how I think about politics. Mm. Um, it's two things I'd say to that, and they've got nothing to do with three body. Um, mm-hmm. So it's I I remember when I was uh, like years ago when I was doing politics in school. Um, one of the topics was was the U.S. and um, we're, I think the, the the classes were fairly informal, and we're talking about like how in some ways how similar the US is to other Western democracies, but in other ways how totally alien it is. And I think the teacher mentioned uh, that there had been something like five US presidents who were actors in, in, in their career before they were politicians. Yikes. And now it's... <laughs> which for all the problems... Five? of Maybe not five, but it was multiple. Because um, I, I think I'd known that Ronald Reagan had been uh, an actor before. Yeah, he's the only one that I know of. But I, and yeah. like as a kid, he was actually just the the spitting image of the perfect president. Right. And I didn't know he was an actor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now we have, a, or in, in the states, there's a reality TV star. And in the UK, we 
the guy we have, he may not be a, a TV star, but he is a, a clown with bright, mm-hmm. like, bright yellow hair, just like the US leader. Mm-hmm. But there's, um, there, there's a really crazy example in Eastern Europe right now. Um, granted, this is something I heard through another podcast, so this is like third-hand information, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Um, so the current president of Ukraine... Uh, before running for the presidency or for office or whatever, he starred in a TV show where he played the president. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the age we live in now. Yeah, um, as a a kid, when Jesse the Body Ventura, a pro wrestler, won a an election, that was my first hint. That I was like, oh shit! Mm. All it takes is being famous, right? Because like our society here in America. Like it, television and celebrities, they really are something that I think we worship a little too hard because we see it every day. And why not vote for your favorite person versus thinking about country philosophy and and potential growth of your civilization? Mm. Um, the other thing I was going to say, I'll, I'll try not to go on about this too long here because it's not related to sci-fi, about um, two-party and three multi-party systems um so in the, the uk it's an interesting one because in our national government it is basically a two-party system a, a red party mm-hmm. and a blue party um but in all the other uh, so we have um we have like uh, all the different local levels like um councils um the european well <laughs> we did have the europe we did vote into the european parliament not anymore because of Brexit, um, and then the devolved um, government. So I'm in Scotland. I also have a vote for the Scottish government, which have it's kind of like the equivalent of a state uh, government in, mm-hmm. in the US. And they all use uh, different uh, voting systems. The votes are counted differently. And those systems produce, um, they don't produce one party with a strong majority. So basically, they tend to produce um, multi parties, which means that you need to have, they need to form coalitions to form get more than half the seats and be in charge. Um, so we have that at every level, basically, except the 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 main government in 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 London. But in mainland Europe, uh, it's the norm to have uh, these proportional voting systems. So a lot of Europe mm-hmm. is um, run on in with coalition governments and. No one really talks about it that much here in the UK. Um, when we did have a, a, a party who proposed, we, we had a referendum, we had a vote on whether to change to a proportional system, and every, the argument against it was, well, no, we can't have coalition governments, they're awful, it will be the end of us. And we completely ignored the fact that all our neighbouring countries do it, and they're fine. Okay. But yeah, um, so, so in, in my idealistic mind, multi-party systems are the best but then if you look at um the most pretty much the most multi-party representational voting system there ever was it was 1930s uh sorry 1920s and early 30s germany the weimar weimar republic which was one of the most this this is kind of coming back to three body one of the most idealistic uh, democratic systems ever and what ended up happening was one third of the votes were going to the nazis one third of the votes were going to the communists, and the remaining third of the votes went to all the other parties who actually didn't want to get rid of democracy. So the idealistic system destroyed itself, basically. And maybe I was going to say that um, the long-term thinking. So uh, multiple parties, maybe they are working for maybe a good several decades, maybe even a couple hundred years, but 
given enough time, you give it more chances to go crazier. Yeah, well, I think a danger of it is um, to form... I know this happened in Sweden, I think. A party needed to get a majority, and the only way they could do it was by incorporating a far-right party. They needed a few seats, Mm -hmm. and, and, and they got them. So the far right party didn't take over, but that's the kind of danger that system presents: is it can be exploited by fringes, it can become like uh, kingmakers. Uh, we should probably keep going and talking about yes. free body though, because we're getting very serious, and that's something I try to avoid. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, so I thought we could zoom in onto book three because that's the one that this episode is nominally uh, nominally about: is uh, Death's End. So as we've I guess we can skip uh, the recap. We've basically already recapped the plot of Death's End. Um, so I'll just ask you, why... Well, am I right in thinking this one's your favourite in the series? Am I, is that right? Yes. Yeah, and so um, in that case, why is it your favourite? Uh, Leo, uh, he mentioned that uh, his first two books, he really was holding back because he's like, like me or any of us, like he's trying to reach to a big audience and no big audience wants to see... What happens if you get to a faraway star? They don't give that much crap about like your fission-powered spaceships. So he always held back uh, to keep it grounded. And then at the end, he dazzles us with like you know wild sci-fi. The last book just was haymaker punches over and over mm-hmm. again of wild sci-fi of like um, uh, people finding dimensional fractures, allowing them to attack um, higher technological civilizations and then like the the, the, the giant freaking extra dimensional donut in the, the the pond uh the fourth dimensional pond mm. then you get like um that gigantic time jump where like the guys like the next chapter by the way now we're like 18 billion years in the future like holy shit dude <laughs> yeah. like and then like you know it was a short story like of a guy who threw himself into a black hole and you get to see his imprint forever there and just like mm. Two-dimensional foil, like, I just, it was just a a bonanza of wild sci-fi in a way that I haven't been rocked in way too long. So it was just way more fun than um, the depression of the first book, and the second book was also a little too dry for me. Yeah, and it kind of has, like, middle middle act um, Mm -hmm. syndrome, where it it can't run on the steam of being the start and it can't speed towards the end either yeah um even though like you know the the second one had my easily my favorite character well og like Mm. i had i I could connect with him the easiest and had the most fun with him but yeah that third book of haymaker punches of wild ideas and force fields and space stations and the end of the universe itself like god damn man like (laughs) no science fiction writer has hit me that hard before. And I've, I've read some weird people like Dan Simmons and his Hyperion Cantos and Isaac Asimov with his foundation. I've uh, dabbled in Dune, had some fun there. But, like, yeah, like, the, a thing, another thing that I was trying to get from the destruction of Star Wars is, like, are we out of new ideas, really? Like, do we really have to just go over old ones? Is it is it over? And he was like, nope, I still got crazy. And and someone else will build on his shoulders and be even crazier and make us think about new things. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. 
Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. It was it was a similar experience for me. Um, it was like I kind of imagine uh, if 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 you took like an exponential line graph um, and then flipped it in its mirror image, so you just have a funnel that starts off thin, gets a bit thicker in book two, and then book three, it it basically just becomes <laughs> a, a, a vertical line. It's just a crazy acceleration um in in book three and i have a thought where is it going i'm just going to pause and see if i can remember what i was going to say mm-hmm. uh, let me think oh yes yeah i remember um yeah this is this has been on my mind um a, f- a few times and it was on my mind pretty much through reading the whole series um, as soon as the terms like chaotic era and stable era started appearing, and especially when in, in book one, um, um, Qin Shi Huang, the emperor who start who founded China's first dynasty, he gets like a I don't know what you'd call it a cameo. He he appears in the virtual reality in book one, and I took that as a message that wait we're we're saying something bigger here about I got I got the feeling that there might be he might be hinting that there are things in common between Chinese civilization and the Trisolarans, and whether that's true or not is kind of beside the point because it set me thinking about what mm-hmm. par- what could the series be drawing on things from Chinese history. Um, so to tell tell anyone listening a little bit about my very awkward, inept entry in, into China when I moved there, I arrived about this time of year, actually. I arrived at the start the first, start of the first week of October, which is a national holiday in China. Uh, they get a week off. And I was a stupid boy. I just spent a week, because I, I was in a small town, I had no idea where I was going. So I spent pretty much seven days straight uh, alternating between trying to walk to the shops, so I was trying to remember where the shops were to buy like vegetables and rice. And then the uh-huh. rest of the time, I was just reading one of the books I brought with me in my room. And it was uh, China, A History by John Key. And I had n- pretty much no knowledge of Chinese history before that. And that, reading that book was kind of like reading Death's End, because it's just haymaker after haymaker of what the fuck, how many people died? What? Um, oh, wow. And, and when things go well, oh my God, what? it was re- China was really doing this well? Because maybe the the education you get here in the West, you kind of just assume that because um, Europe and the West or whatever came out on top, that, they, that they'd always sort of been the top dog. I just sort of assumed that, stupidly, yep. that like the Roman Empire, when it was at its best, no one could have possibly been doing as good. But reading that book, um, I learned that actually, um, through most of history, other, yeah, there were times when under Greek culture or the Roman Empire... Europe was doing well, but actually uh, Persia and uh, the the Persian and the Chinese civilizations were often themselves like the most advanced um, in the world for long stretches. But the the, the thing that really struck me about Chinese civilization is it had soaring heights and absolutely horrific lows, very, like definitely, if, if you were looking for a word to describe them, like stable eras, chaotic eras. When things were stable, they went well, generally speaking. And when things were chaotic, there might be some like cultural fruitfulness, but the declines in everything were, were enormous. And I kept getting flashbacks to that reading Three Body. Um, not only Death's End, but especially Death's End, because f- some of the fluctuations, I think, get the most dramatic in, in, in that third book. 
Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, I started thinking about like, um, how Trisolaria is cut off from us. Like the, the, the book goes, does a lot of how much we only get to hear a bit about them versus actually seeing their civilization and what's going on over there. And yeah, I, I came across some history as well, like saying uh, how uh, for a time, like, yeah, China was on top. And then also, uh, I like telling this story, uh, the mysterious Chinaman James. Uh, yes. I was reading Death's End in a park, uh, and I was just like, because I was just like all in, like the, like the wildest shit was happening, and I'm just like, oh my god, oh my god. And uh, this guy was walking his bike, uh, uh, Asian, I'm pretty sure he's Taiwanese. Right. Um he didn't see what I was reading or the author of who <laughs> of of what I was reading, but yeah, he just struck up conversation with me. I'm just like, yeah, um, yeah, you seem to be really really into this book, and like, I'm like, yeah, it's Chinese science fiction. I I didn't know it was a thing, and I, I believe like I'm reading like multiple layers and lessons, and he's like, ah, you're getting it, and it's like awesome, and then like we got in this like big conversation about like civilizations and countries like he was like saying to me like yeah like um do you still think the u.s is the number one in the world you know things change i'm old enough to see like the time when the uk was the number one in the world and like in my bubble of my universe that i've always existed in like it's just never been a thing to think otherwise that america's always been on top and then he's like yeah but you guys don't notice it yet, but you've changed. And like, I I know that like a couple years ago, like uh, a lot of friends on my social media, we all just expressed, does something feel different? Something, something feels off. And not many people can put their finger on it. I'm still thinking we're still trying to find our way there. But yeah, it's kind of interesting how blocked off my world has been from ever considering like that China may have ever been doing better than Rome itself, which, yeah, I still hardly ever think about. It's hard to conceive that actually happened, but yeah, things change. Mm, yeah. Um, I, my, my knowledge of like, or my knowledge of, of Chinese dynasties is it's okay now, but my ability to like, n- Say for example, um, the the Song Dynasty and the Southern Song Dynasty. That was quite a good time in China, and I, I could tell you about that. But if you ask me what was going on in Europe uh, when the Song Dynasty was in China, I'm not I've not kind of memorized the like historical parallels. But one that's really interesting I've talked on the show about before is uh, the Tang Dynasty and Rome. Um, that's an interesting thing to read into because that was a time when there was a European power at its doing very well, if not at its peak. And the Tang Dynasty is supposed to be, is generally considered to be the cultural peak that the Chinese Empire hit. So um, if you're able to find anything to read about that, that's a really interesting point of comparison. But there's, 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 it's endless, you know, you can read on and on and about it forever. And I, I, I've never got bored. It's, 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 it's a crazy, once, once you start, once you, have an interest in something that you can keep following. Like Mm -hmm. you said about looking for something to replace Star Wars, it's incredibly fulfilling. Um, As uh, the father in uh, Leo's uh, first book, um, 
uh, I'm not sure if that was his first, Ball Lightning. His father said, the key to a happy life is a fascination in something. There you go. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Um, Another thing uh, Chinaman James pointed mm-hmm. out like about the mystery of China itself, he's like, he's trying to tell me that um, there's a whole lot about China that we don't know. Like, there's just vast things that, like, he, like one, of, one of the things he said was like, there are things over there you think were magic. You have no idea. Like, yeah, he's like, yeah, do you guys still think you're number one? Like, you guys need to wake up or else. Or else. Yeah. Mm. And just to be clear, when he walked up to you, had you met him before or was he a total stranger? Nope. Right. Total stranger. Um, I had gone through a breakup around then and he kind of helped me out with that with like some lessons about like, uh, he, he picked up my headphones. He was like, see, these are heavy. Wait, no, not this. That That, that grill over there. That's a heavy grill. You had great meals on it, but it doesn't work anymore. Yet you're still carrying it. It's okay to put it down. And like, yeah, he just freaking philosophized me. And we talked about um, countries, civilizations, differences. And yeah, yeah. It was an amazing conversation. Thanks to Death's End awakening me to different ways to ask different questions and uh, how to see different civilizations. Mm. And are you guys still in touch? Uh, not exactly. Um, I'll be honest. He spooked me a little bit. <laughs> bit. Like, uh, like it was just like the, 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 the you got three body problem, all these mysterious people and conspiracies and like giant civilizations. And I don't know where coincidentally at the exact right time, this mm. guy comes up and he just starts hitting me with all these like big ideas and philosophy. Like I'm a little intimidated to look him up again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not even kidding. Like it, it's, 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 it's in part because like he wowed me. Uh, I, I really admired him a lot. So I was, I'm a little even like a version of starstruck by him. And then, like, worried about, like, trying to sit down with a stranger so we have another conversation that lives up to the one that we had. Mm. So, yeah, it's kind of hard to, like, yeah, I don't usually, you know, hang out with people that I don't know. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I have him on text. I, like, I, I sent him a text a while ago, and I was like, hey, how you doing? He's like, yeah, yeah, just whenever you're free, we'll go for coffee sometime, he said to me. And that's the last I heard from him. Right. Well, he's probably out there spreading his, his wisdom. Oh, there was someone I was going to say. What was it? <laughs> Give me a sec. I'm going to try and remember. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. No, I remember what it was. So what we were we were both saying that we felt there were, when we first, something took our, some, when our kind of, my, no, let me start again. So we were both saying that we there was a point in our lives when we realized there was this whole other world we didn't know about and maybe our own little kind of education and upbringing had blinkered us to certain parts of the world and we've we've both had such um we've both got so much out of talking to other people and learning about china and and the wider world and so on um but a thing i've learned doing doing this podcast and learning about literary translation actually um to and from chinese is that it's not the same for everyone in the world, um, especially in non-English speaking countries, and especially um, in, a, in a country like China, where its relationship with the Western world and the rest of the world is so key and kind of so fraught. And 
to some extent, I could, I, I've had to explain this to to Americans where they they'll try and explain something to America about me, and it's like I already know that because whose movies do you think I watch when I go to the cinema? The whole world mm-hmm. consumes American pop culture, um, and me as someone from the UK, I'm I have the benefit of being an English speaking person, and to some extent, there's some UK pop culture the world consumes, um, and Chinese readers, the books that Chinese people read are there's a huge proportion that are translated from English, but not just from English, from, from other languages. So if you have a chat with an educated Chinese person, in although they're living in a country which has internet censorship, political censorship, blah, 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 in some ways they're going to be a better global citizen than you because they when they learn about the rest of the world, um, they'll have a very kind of global approach approach they'll they will mm-hmm. they'll know lots about their own country and they might think their own country is the best and so on but they'll also have been subject to all you know the the kind of hegemony of um america or the english-speaking world but they'll probably if they've read a lot of books they'll probably also have read stuff from french authors russian authors so i found if if anytime when i've had a conversation with a chinese person about you know quote quote marks countries civilizations cultures it can be really good conversations because th- we'll both have a lot to say and we'll both have a lot to, it won't just be us parting each other. There'll be um, a lot of, what's the word, asymmetry in the view of the world that we have. And a lot of it clicks together. It's not, it's not the, uh, it's not the nightmare situation where there's no way you can possibly find a middle ground or agree. It can often be really nice conversations that you can have. Cool. Huh? Yeah, um, the book brought to light how much I'm blocked off mm. from everything not American. Yeah, um, and then also just like how it was, it, it was, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure where I'm going to go with that. That's okay. Um, yeah, uh, it, it brought to light how much I consume and only see, but then I guess I. A majority of my life, I, I see a lot of Japanese stuff, but yeah, that's like, yeah, you don't think about enough about how, what fiction you get is from pretty limited lanes of thought. Mm. That makes sense? Sure, yeah. I think J- Japan's an interesting one, because that's a, a country, a non-English speaking country that's successfully kind of exported its um, its pop culture, and it's kind of unique in, in in that way i think in in some ways like yeah uh, i find like a lot of black people in america uh love it and i have thought that one of the reasons why it's such a big deal to especially like young black kids is that it's the only other bit of uh entertainment we ever get that's not made by white people like right. in our own country like you know if, if you're black we're all american um, but you know, there's, uh, what I call, what, what, uh, Susan Liu, cause I'm terrible at his name. Um, it, he, he brought up something called dimensional awareness. Do you remember that? Uh, vaguely. Um, like he, he wrote it in italics so that it seemed like I was like, whoa, wow. He seems like he really wants us to understand this concept. And dimensional awareness was that, uh, those people who found fractures that allowed them to see like four four dimensional space, um, and then once they went back to three dimensional space, they had 
different awareness of what's always there. Um, right. And to me, I think that is a good way to describe like the human experience where you can go down certain lanes and get only certain influence. And like, you can have like a simple life where you don't see the dimensional weirdness that you might understand if you crack open a Japanese manga that allows you to see the world from different angles and philosophies and ideas that now you have a higher dimensional awareness of like things that are always there. And you can get this with anything, music, mm. any kind of like uh, influence from a culture. It cracks open more of the world for you so that you think about more. And therefore, like the way I see like how black men are used in fiction, um, nightmare horror story. But it's because I have that dimensional awareness that's always there through my life experience. But if you don't see it, like, it's not because you're an asshole. It's because you weren't able to get that awareness. You don't see that dimension at all because it, it's just like, it's always there. Mm-hmm. But you don't have the experience to unlock it. Yeah. I, th- I just love that idea. I think it's a... Uh... It's a, it is a tricky thing because in in theory we could enjoy like media and culture from everyone and everywhere but i think in reality we need some kind of initial spark or jump off point so one reason it was kind of easy for me to jump into the world of chinese sci-fi and chinese fiction in general is because i lived in china so that, i'm not saying that equips me with any kind of special knowledge but it gives me the kick up the bum to go down that road that I wouldn't necessarily have for literature from other countries or 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 whatever. Um, and where where was I going with that thought? I don't know. Um, I guess I just want to. We we've been going for about two hours now, so I want to ask you the last death's end question, um, so we can go on yeah. to our next next section. Um, and I think it's a good time to ask this one now that we're getting more into kind of like um, now that we're opening up a bit more because this is this is. This is well. I've opened up about this quite a lot of times before, but um, movies can make me cry quite easily as an adult. As a mm-hmm. kid, they didn't. As an adult, they do. Books—it's very rare. Uh, uh, books can get me like that, but it doesn't happen very often. Um, Chinese sci-fi has got me a few times, but it's mostly been uh, the stories of this writer. I mentioned her before, Shaja. She writes a lot of stuff that. I don't know if it's supposed to be a tearjerker, but she writes a lot of stuff that can hit you in the feels really easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is, like, reading the Three Body trilogy, I found it mostly to be, like, kind of the cliche hard sci-fi. Like, it's very emotionally cold, uh, the language used. Oh, this was the point I was going to make earlier. Um, we should give credit to translators for helping us to access foreign cultures. But yeah, so the writing style, even though it's translated and written by Ken Leo... I think, and, and Joel Martinson, the guy who did uh, the second book, they've mostly kept the language fairly plain, um, probably because that's Lee Sushin's style. He's not a flowery writer, and he's not usually trying to tug on your heartstrings. But there was a bit at the end of the book where, we mentioned this before, some civilizations make it all the way to the end of the universe, despite it being Leo Sushin's vision of the universe is extremely murderous and it's a really fatal universe but kind of comes about that uh, two of our characters make it to the very end and a screen appears that every surviving um, being will be seeing 
and it's a it's kind of it gives you a rolling sort of credits of all the civilizations who made it to the end. And yeah, our two characters are we have two human characters there, and they have a representative of the Trisolarians who's living with them there at the end mm-hmm. of the universe. And oh man, it's getting me even thinking about it. You see, like human human humankind pops up on the screen at some point, and then because they they're looking really hard for it because the things are going quite quickly they spot humankind mm-hmm. and they spot trisolaris and they're like god damn it mm-hmm. we made it to the end and i was sitting there in my my room on my own reading it being like oh my god the Shin got me he made he made the water drops come out my eyes um mm-hmm. so my question for you is did the books get you like that at all at any point and that uh books no book is i don't think any book has made me cry yet Mm. Um, they hit me hard so that my brain starts like just flowing through like recalibrations and calculations. If that makes sense? Um, like I, I didn't cry, but at the destruction of the solar system, I was kind of, I was kind of gone. Mm. Like, um, a good book can make me disappear mm. so that I am lost in the ideas, implications, what it means, what it can mean to me and my life. And so, yeah, like I didn't cry, but it took me away from my life. Like I just, I disappeared is what I, is the best way of describing yeah. it. For a while, I disappeared, and <laughs> I became one with the universe, and I just kind of thought about, like, ends, the beginnings, ends, the, the vast distance of, like, time and experience itself. And, yeah, like, the the the, uh, the idea of when, like, that 2D foil hit the Earth, and, like, it was enwrapped, in, it was uh, encircled by gigantic snowflakes, um... Yeah, it didn't make me cry, but I was uh, in awe. There you go. Mm. Like, I had been searching for that. um, Because, like, for me, like, the new Star Wars, (laughs) I keep going back to that, um, they have all the resources of humanity itself. Like, I thought I was going to see the greatest piece of art I've ever seen that money could buy, and I saw nothing there. But then... It um, in my search for like where does creativity come from? It comes from crazy people. Like, uh, it it's not something you create by committee. It is a strange, weird person who has had a unique life that can't help but blurt it out to everybody. And through them, you start to see more of humanity and and what we can become. Yeah. And not to get all snooty and stuff, but yeah, that's the. Uh, that's the emotional explosion that hit me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do kind of know what you mean about feeling disillusioned about the the potential that Hollywood and the global movie making industry has in general and what it actually gives us where yeah. all the investments in it. It's not really about... Sto- a story isn't a story. A story is... Um, IP intellectual Product? property. Yeah, and, God, that hit me so hard. Yeah, and creating. When I noticed, like, yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. what were you going to say? 
As I say, sorry, I, I cut you off. I apologize. Oh, um, but no, it's fine. What you mentioned about like how if it gets to a certain corporate level, it can become a, yeah, it's a it's a product, it's an IP, it's a yeah, it's a product that um, some math people understand it. If you do this certain thing, you'll get this number back. Versus like the um, there's like this YouTube series uh, SD Debris, I think. Is what he calls himself. I'm not sure why he calls it, but like, there's a YouTube series talking about like the tumultuous path that it took to make Star Wars, and like, yeah, George Lucas is a crazy person, but uh, the creativity from there came from like a whole bunch of different people arguing, and it just coming down to finding something that was like special and. Then you have, and like, yeah, they didn't, you know, they, their money was on the line. There was, there was work to be done. There's fears, there's chances, there's genuine creativity. But then like you look at the background of what the new Star Wars does and it look, they come off as a, in interviews, they come off as politicians. Like they talk in really distant terminologies and some of them don't seem to understand like, why people disliked them and yeah it was made through corporate decisions versus someone who loves the tapestry that you can create from a space opera yeah yeah i think the first time i ever heard um writing new stories that aren't sequels or prequels or spin-offs i heard that described as ip generation and i was like oh no <laughs> What? Yes. Say, say that I, one I, more time. IP generation. So if you write a new uh, a script or a book or a film, which can then be turned into a, pran- a franchise, you have um, mm-hmm. you have not created a new story. You have generated IP, which can then be exploited by. Yikes. Yeah. That's. I'm not saying that's the. That, I don't think that would be any writer's mindset, but that's the corporate view of a new story. It's um. It's just a potential franchise. It's a potential generator of sequels and you know tv adaptations and this that and the other and yeah that's why we have what we get or that's what we get what we have it's the cool. yeah then there's uh the three body problem universe that he did the star wars thing he actually managed to do it where um versus say um the fifth element but like the problem i find with like differences fifth element everything in that story every science fiction thing is made to facilitate the one story and once that one story is done, that's done. There's nothing about the fifth element universe that makes you go, I want to live there. There's other things I could do there. And other things could happen as a result of these things existing. Uh, it's all just a picture to tell that one story. But in uh, three-body problem universe, you got a freaking odd universe that works whether you're there or not. Uh, scales to our universe or your own life. Um, And it's like a lot of puzzle pieces masterfully put together so that it builds a, a world picture versus just a story picture. Mm. And then like, yeah, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, they have a world picture and a story picture. There you go. Versus just story picture. Um, So speaking of like being a very intricate um, creation and a world and so on and the kind of grand scale of things, I remember when when we first got talking, you kind of laid out your theory as to what Leotzuchin was doing when he wrote this trilogy. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think you could 
describe that theory for the listeners because I think it's it's a really compelling interpretation which I'd never quite heard before, and I think it'd be an interesting thing to talk about. I think that he wanted to wake people up to the bigger game that can go on between uh, all humans. Um, like he kept on saying every in all of his interviews, he wanted to teach people about scale and what things can mean. So like if you have like gigantic superpowers like uh America and China or something like that or it's actually and it scales from anywhere, like countries to political parties to you and your roommates even. Um he's trying to teach about like the raw aspects of like how we all interact together and how there's a when you experience a limit of resources that there's always going to be some play at getting all those resources and that you have to watch out for the manipulations that can happen to you on the path toward that conflict. Um, like social media, uh, I think is analogous to sofans or the sofans can drive you crazy. Um, they can unwrap your eye and present images and those can drive you crazy, even to suicide. Where Facebook, um, I think I interacted with social media a little differently because of my obsession with uh, internet interactions. And I start noticing like um, patterns and why people do things and the cycle of how things work. But if you're not like as obsessed with that and you're not noticing like the patterns... So, like, my friends who interact on on Facebook lately, like, I have two of them, they've, they, they've cut, they've deleted Facebook because the images put before them that are conjured by an algorithm, it, it, it drove them mad. Like, they, they hated their lives more mm. because of it. So, I think he's trying to, there's, like, a lot of warnings I thought that were in there about, like, um how messages get to you, who's sending them and why, and how the right order of them can hurt you. Versus, like, um, and what you can do about it, which is taking a bigger step back, understanding the basics of why things are happening, and also knowing that some things, some scales are helpless to change. And that, like, I think a good lesson in the books was that um, a lot of the people who are the most fortunate live normal lives. <laughs> like, uh, the people who lived within their own lifetimes, who didn't travel the speed of light, they got to raise families and experience those joys, knowing that their lives would end. But then, like, you know, they, I guess, like, I'm not sure those worlds had the additional fear of, like, all civilization ending. But, like, it was the people who step beyond and, like, travel through time and space. They seem to have lonelier lives. And um, they witness devastation versus the people who were in smaller lives. Well, they probably experienced their own, like, you know, personal devastations because we all do. But, yeah, um, it, it was the multi-layered lens of scaling of like existence that I saw in his books, which were warnings about like bigger systems, 
how those big systems don't give a fuck about you and might take you out if you say the wrong thing. And then like, um, yeah, it just, it, 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 so like when I look at my election now, once upon a time, I saw a smaller scale. Like I saw a uh, hero versus villain and I want my hero to win. Mm. But then, you know, say if, if, if you step, take far enough step back, that hero is a part of a system of like millions of humans and they're all playing a part in changing the course of humanity. So it's not so much Biden I'm voting for as much as a chance for all of the people that could take us in a more intellectual direction. So it's not just, yeah. Mm. Does that make sense? Did I just babble a lot? Um, Did I say? I think the general point you're making is it got you thinking in a more zoomed out scale. Um, You were, if I was going to summarize everything you said into one sentence, that would be it. And I think, yeah, like I was, I was saying that the series was for me kind of like a splash of cold water, like giving me a, a, a drop of, like a more cynical view of reality that was a little bit of a medicine to my possibly slightly too idealistic uh, view. Same. Yeah. And I guess also making me think about um, things at a, a larger a larger scale. Um, a thing that I've mentioned on the show before um, when I was doing episodes on Chinese sci-fi, but it's worth mentioning again because um, it's so relevant to what you were saying. So I, um, I got invited uh, last year to a symposium on um, genre fiction from China, and it, we were really looking at... Um, uh, was it crime? Yeah, crime and sci-fi. But we had um, we had some special guests um, who were more concerned with sci-fi. We, we had two authors, uh, Xia Jia and Chen Xiaofan. And um, most of the academics who were attending were more interested in Chinese sci-fi. And one of the guys who was there, he's called Nick Stember. And he's... He's he's got quite a few kind of things he he studies in Chinese literature, but one of them the things he's quite knowledgeable about is uh, sci-fi. But he told us a, an anecdote that wasn't um, specific to Chinese literature, but it was really interesting when you're thinking about three body. So he'd heard about this algorithm that I don't know who who made it, but there was an algorithm that was made, which basically you could um, it was fed lots of different books. It was given all the texts of various books, and it was. The, it was tasked with like looking for patterns, so things that were common um, between the writing of like it was, for example, it would be fed lots of crime and detective novels, and it would look for what all those novels had in common in their their text, and then it, the same was done for sci-fi. And what it found in the case of crime and detective novels was um, the one thing they all had in common that the computer program was able to detect was lots of descriptions of uh, rooms, so the descriptions of interior environments. And the one thing it was able to find in sci-fi that all the sci-fi books had in common was descriptions of scale, very small scale and very large scale. And it's funny just how close, how directly that applies to three bodies. So much of it, whether you're looking for it or not, whether it's apparent to you or not, so much of it is about scale, micro and macro. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah. It introduced me to thinking about the macro, like where you don't like, um, and like it, it made things. <laughs> let's see, 
Yep, drink every time I bring up Star Wars. Uh, oh, no. It, it made me think about, um, like, how destruction creates new and how adversity also creates <clears throat> something else. So, like, a lot of us, when we saw Last Jedi, we were like, shit, Star Wars is over. We lost everything. Like, they they did everything against like what we loved about Star Wars. Luke is trash. Um, it's a it's a on top of is the biggest Star Wars stories that didn't make sense. Um, none of the lore added up. It was just nonsense. And in its place, like I have never seen the Star Wars. Like I've been a Star Wars fan all my entire my entire life. I've never seen Star Wars fans care more about Star Wars than when it was destroyed. Like. There weren't this many lore. There's lore channels, uh, streamers, uh, reviewers. I've never seen people care about writing technique more. There's just like an expo- there was an explosion of channels that get millions of views of people who love like the top speed of a Star Destroyer, and then also like being a Star Wars fan. There are the books, the extended universe, which as a Star Wars fan you kind of chuckle to yourself. You go, ha, 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 I remember those books. Now they're revered. Like, there's giant groups, like, dedicated to just, like, understanding that, like, yeah, they're stupid in there, but there's greatness. And, like, um, in Bao Xu's book, where he talks about the destruction of the 10-dimensional universe and how creating limits creates dimensional meaning in life. If, yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, learning about, like, gigantic macro scales... And what big changes can do down to the micro that maybe people down to their own scale don't notice have happened. And like how everything is always connected like that. It just makes the whole world that I like love and watching in the first place even more beautiful. So, yeah, these books have changed me. Awesome. Um, So the next question I've got for you, it's also about theories. Um, Have you come across other people's like theories that kind of try to explain what uh, the three body trilogy is all about and if if you have which parts of those theories have you ag- agreed with or do you find kind of matched your own theory and are there any um theories you've come across which you really just disagree with you think it's someone really misunderstanding what it's all about mm, sadly no uh i really wish i could go deeper on this kind of a my my problem that I've been running into, which you're helping me with, is like no one talks about it on the level that I'm thinking about it. Mm. Um, like when most people engage with it, they engage with it on like how Westerners normally do, like the first dimensional level, like the flat level of like it is an awesome science fiction book. Holy crap, that was amazing! Like destroy the the the, the solar system and and like the distance and the troubles that causes. Most people, like, when I go across, like, um, YouTubers who do reviews on it, that's where they stop. They they right. think, oh, wow, dazzling um, astrophysics. And that's and they stop there. And um, I think that I may have grown with a dimensional awareness that's a little different. Because, like, um, I've always loved Chinese philosophy. I've, I've uh, had the, the, the smallest connection to them through... Uh, like as a young young kid, um, I just digested goo gobs of kung fu movies, which don't necessarily come from China, from Hong Kong, but 
the philosophies and whatnot there. And then I think um, through being an anime fan or a tokusatsu fan, you start just reading and looking at things just different enough that you end up seeing what's under the hood that other people who haven't spent a lifetime of caring about philosophy, astronomy, and uh, Asian um, uh, culture, they they don't. Uh, I'm not. I'm not smarter. I'm definitely not smarter than those people. But it's the dimensional awareness that I was talking about, like where through my path of life, I have um, life dimensional fractures that allow me to see things that other people might not. Versus like how they have it. Like, well, the way I describe it and the other way around is like the dimensional awareness of music. Because like when I start talking about this, it can make it sound like I'm like I am so smart and so much better than other people. But um, when it comes to music, I am as one-dimensional as, as you can possibly get. Um, I don't know anything about music. I don't know how it's made. I don't understand the talent or philosophies behind it. It's all neat. And all of it is stuff I can't do. So if I say if – I, if, I, if I was told that Limp Biscuit is a bad band, I take other people's word for it because like, it's beyond what I can think about. Mm-hmm. So I think like science fiction, if you've spent a lifetime in it – caring about philosophy and whatnot, then all of a sudden you get more dimensional layers because that's what you care about. And I don't think people have to care about it. Like you go through life, you experience it and you enjoy however you can and do. But yeah, uh, I saw things that a lot of other people just weren't looking for, don't need to look for. Um, so yeah, there there weren't enough. There weren't a lot of theories and stuff. And like, I have a small group of friends, and we are just touching on like ideas and and uh, and theories and whatnot. And we're only just scratching the surface because not all of us have read it yet. But yeah, that's mm. the the closest I come. And since we've all grew up within the same kind of dimensional path, like we're all on the same pages of like what we believe means what, such as like um ah. Uh, there's like a disagreement on the potential meaning of I think like in the in the, the fairy tales mm. where mm. there's like Prince of Deep Water, I think. Anyway, I shoot. Now I'm gonna get lost. But we, it was a, it was a disagreement on like uh does the, the speed of light mean the distance of like human thought? <laughs> or does it mean uh, something else? So, yeah, it, there's, there's not enough conversation or not enough people who have experienced what I've experienced in life so that we can all start theorizing on stuff. Yeah. What about you? How about you? Have you experienced some theories that you disagree with or you thought were awesome? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Thanks thanks for reversing the question on me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so the place we met was that Facebook group, but I think um, Ad- Adam McMurchy, I think set that group up. Um, if I remember. Yes, right. he did. Yeah. 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 And he's a former guest on the show. Um, actually the other Liu Tzu episode we did, that was the one he was on. But yeah, I think the Facebook group, it's a nice place to talk to people, but the conversation just by the nature of what Facebook is, it doesn't get very deep. Um, it's kind of, and also like, I think like a lot of Facebook groups, the topics tend to kind of cycle around, um, get the same thing popping up again and again um but yeah i'm tr- I'm trying to think like things i've read online about three body there is a little bit of a limitation on what you can get um there's some really great articles 
about the three-body problem uh, available in English, but they're mostly looking at the kind of um, geopolitical context of like rising China, declining West, and the significance mm-hmm. of the trilogy in that context, which is really interesting. But it's kind of the tendency that, especially when any discussion about China in, in Western media tends to get sucked into looking at politics, power, geopolitics, uh, oppression, censorship, which is like, that is all, those are all really worthy and relevant and important topics, but they are a little bit like a black hole. Everything gravitates towards them and other angles that you could analyze things from are, are kind of lost. So yeah, so those the, the theories about um, the whole thing being some kind of a metaphor for um, China versus the West I think are very interesting and there's you can read them lots of different ways. Um, but the problem is those have a bit of a tendency to take over other ways of reading the series. Um, another, oh, another, like how? Oh, well, it just, once you start thinking in terms of like, is Liu Cixin, is he anti-communist party? Is he anti-American? It's just that same tendency we're talking about, like in culture wars, everything gets, Mm-hmm. Every, it, it it consumes everything else, and everyone you know everyone is forced into camp A or camp B, and it's unfortunately this is where if you're trying to talk to um, Chinese readers about the book, some of them will want to talk to you about politics, but others are so used to hearing, um, you know the 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 stereotypical Westerner saying the same stereotypical mean things quote unquote about their country, it can poison mm-hmm. your conversation from the start. Mm-hmm. So I'm always I can see that. yeah. So I'm always careful on the podcast if I want to talk about that stuff. Um, so to, there's an interesting uh, path of thought on that yeah. where, like, I have I was able to I was able to see like the idea of like it being a warning to the West, East versus West. But like, there's a thing about it that made me think that uh, it's like a like a prism that if you turn it some you can still see other ways of seeing it such as like it's um maybe it may be too simple and to think of it as uh east versus west versus uh individuals versus giant systems mm. it's like because like um it, in this in the uh metaphor and from what i've seen like how groups kind of talk about themselves it sounds like the fans of Three Body Problem are the ETO. But if you're part of the ETO, then you're trying to work toward the system destroying us. So could the ETO be maybe a metaphor for wanting better? And you're just trying to bring that to your own world. Mm. And the danger and devastation is the macro of how country systems work against their uh their civilians sometimes yeah um, so yeah there's a lot of dimensional ways of looking at it and worth looking at it but that actually leads me to the other interesting discussions on ways of thinking about the series that i've seen so i was saying before how i was wondering as i was reading it how much it's supposed to, it's informed by Chinese history, either ancient or recent. Um, and if you think about the ETO, um, they're a radical sort of organization. They have 
very negative beliefs about the state of humanity. And you can kind of see similar organizations, um, A, in other parts of the three-body problem, uh, other movements, B, uh, other movements in the series who have kind of a strong or radical belief, which tends to be objectively wrong. They tend to be doing something... Um, they have very strong beliefs, that, but they're completely contrary to what humanity should be doing. You can see groups like that in other stories by Liu Cixin. For example, in uh, The Wandering Earth, there are groups of people who think that um, Earth shouldn't be trying to escape from the dying sun, that it's all a hoax. They're a lot like um, climate change deniers. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see other groups like that in, in Chinese history, like if the Cultural Revolution. That was kind of what would you call it like Maoist radical radicalism to the furthest extreme it could possibly be pushed and it was incredibly destructive for China um you can read a great deal about just how much was lost during that period because of for, for lots of things caused it but what it was was um it was an attempt to go as le- far left as you possibly can uh, destroy the past get rid of anything that contradicts um the the ruling doctrine or whatever and quite i think a a really big reason why china um although still being ruled by the communist party kind of shifted towards a a capitalist model or or a less ideological communist model was after the cultural revolution it was just so obvious that the that period had been so destructive it left like a very sour taste on people's um, tongues, so to speak. It kind of mm-hmm. poisoned the idea of radical visions of making the world a better place, I think, for a lot of people. And Liu Cixin was a boy when, when that was um, going on. So a thing that I find interesting is trying to guess, like, how has domestic Chinese politics and history informed his stories? And it, you can only really theorize, because you can only guess what's going on in his head. But yeah, that's I enjoy reading those theories based on not international politics but domestic chinese politics and history um but again it's still politics it still reduces a sci-fi story to a boring you know sort of human struggle Mm -hmm. story so i i would try not to let that view of the story completely encompass everything um but yet the other things i was going to say about discussion of the, the trilogy there's a couple things that kind of stop us getting a full discussion and one is that a lot of the really interesting stuff written about chinese literature in english is academic so you can only access it if you're with a university or a library and you have academic access or if the journals that publish the stuff um, make it open access and free and even if it's still free you still need to know where to look for it so that's one problem, that a lot of the best discussion about Chinese lit is in the academic world, not in the popular sphere. And another problem is just the problem of languages. Not A lot of the most interesting stuff about Three Body will obviously have been written in Chinese and not translated. And that could be articles in websites and newspapers and whatnot, or it could be bloggers and book reviewers. Uh, there's a really good Chinese site called Douban, which has like, it's like Chinese IMDB, it's Chinese Goodreads, and you can find loads of amazing book reviews on Doban, but they're all in Chinese. So me, like my Chinese level is not good enough to even read a book review. So if I want to know what Chinese readers think of a book, I'll go on Doban and use the auto-translate feature, which obviously Mm -hmm. 
is far from perfect. But yeah, I think a lot of the most interesting thoughts about three body are shut off from you if your Chinese reading level isn't good enough to to read them. Yeah, I was thinking. Um, I was kind of hoping that maybe, like with Japan, uh, a fan community would start to arise where we just start just getting goo gobs of like their fiction fan subbed for us. Mm. Um, a beautiful thing that I noticed when like how I noticed that the people in uh, Geeks of China of uh, Three Body Problem want us to know, mm. like they want us to get into it, how they, how they see it when like, I, I was just like, uh, I was getting that feeling while I was reading the books, like, like how there's like some imagery and whatnot in there that seem to line up with like Western science, science fiction. And also if you're a Japanese science fiction geek, we're just kind of like, huh, it's kind of like he's using like signals so that I tune into, you know, his message. And like only, only, only people who, uh, are into this can maybe get it on that level. So um, I started doing searches for, I was like, so if he's influencing this many people, like who else is out there that might want to also share this? And that's when I found uh, my three body, um, the remake of three body problem saga in Minecraft. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it turns into a CGI uh, online series and any TV series they have to try to live up to that. That is a hard act to follow. It that's that stuff has probably made me cry. Um, that has taken away my heart. And, and, and the thing that I felt most beautiful about it, which um, just made me so thankful, was that it was subtitled in English. Right. And yeah, yeah, that they did that was like, oh, holy shit! They aren't just making it for themselves. They want all of us in on this, or all of us that can read English at least. But yeah, that that blew me away that they cared enough to put English subtitles on it. And like, um, there's another connection of like, what kind of geek are you? Nudge nudge was uh, in the My Three Body. I was reading. Uh, there's like, if you watch on the Chinese Billy Billy site, uh, you can you know see Billy Billy. Though yeah. <laughs> I have very happy huh? memories of using Billy Billy when I was inside China. Um, it's cool. I wasn't expecting you to to hear those words, but that's that's awesome. <laughs> The it three body problem took me down the well, man. Yeah. Um, like so I just started doing searches and stuff, and so I found the link, and then like I wanted more, and that led me to some link that I found. I was like, Billy, Billy, what's what's this? And I was like, Oh my god, <laughs> this is like another YouTube, yeah, <laughs> of just creation. And then like um uh something that I haven't seen on YouTube, like you can click a thing so that you see fan mm. commentary mm. as it's going. Yeah, and like. Um, there's a, someone that, uh, Tokusatsu is, uh, basically what the West knows mostly as Power Rangers, um, but with, like, uh, Japanese actors and stuff like that. And then there's, like, a sister show called Kamen Rider, where you have one hero who transforms into a guy who fights monsters. Um, and, like, you know, they have their own uh, associated sound effects. So, one of the guys, a comrade guy named Kamen Rider Fies, uh, he dials on his phone, and he goes, standing by, and he goes, Henshin. And um, he transforms. In the My Three Body series, like, uh, there's just a small part where, like, uh, they're taking Loji into, like, an elevator. And, like, someone dials something. And they use a sound effect from Kamen Rider. I'm just like, oh, my God. We're both Kamen Rider fans, too. Mm. I'm like, I I feel like I'm here with, like, an alien family who, like, I didn't know exists. And, like, we're all connected. This is so beautiful. So, like, yeah, I, I loved how... 
um, their emergent fan community is reaching out to the West so that we all get in on the fun. Yeah, I think I mentioned before how much like uh, how much young people in China are into like Japanese pop culture, and it's like it's a weird thing because that is something that is to some extent young people in China have in common with young people in the West. There's a really interesting difference, though. Um, like my memories of being like a teenager was that the kids in my school who liked things like anime and manga were, to, to put it politely, the biggest nerds, and they were a oh, very yeah. small group. Probably there's probably less of them in uh, Scotland than like the the proportion of like anime and manga kids where I grew up in Scotland. I would imagine is probably lower than the proportion in like uh, in your average high school in the U.S. So yeah, it was a small. Ouch. I think so. I think. It might be very different now, but it was like a very now, small sort of niche thing that the nerdy kids shamelessly enjoyed. Good for them. Uh, whereas uh, in China, um, it's a lot, I think it is, it depends to what extent you're into it, but I, the impression I got was that um, it's a lot more normal as a Chinese, a young Chinese person to be into that that sort of stuff. It's, um, it's still... It's maybe like I don't know, like um, like Marvel or or sci-fi over here. It is a subculture, but it's it's a subculture that if you enjoy it, you're not, you know, you're not a strange, <laughs> you're not a weirdo. Basically, it's um, cool. it's normal over there, and they'll um, the the Japanese. Yeah, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Oh yeah, there's a there's like a hiccup in oh. our audio. All oh, right, cool, cool. Yeah, so yeah, so um, it was a thing I never saw coming. Um, and realized it's another example of like it's almost the same and yet it's slightly different um, the the way that um, Japanese stuff is consumed in China. Um, um, yeah, uh, there's a uh, flipping around the questions and stuff. I, I don't think I got to hear from you. How did you get into three body problem? Good, what led you good there? Good question. Um, I remember hearing what the odd thing, and I remember there was an article I read. Um, so after I'd heard the name and I was like, I need to know more about this. There was an article on some, uh, I think, newspaper's website, but I don't remember which one, but it described the plot summary. Um, and that hooked me. The premise of the story is what hooked me. The, there was a slight catch, because the the premise that really interested me, and I realise, I know now how what a small section of the book this is, it was the bit where um, the the article said, so the aliens are coming for the humans, but they don't, they can't get across the universe in, in you know the blink of an eye. They've got they'll arrive in five hundred years. So mankind has to collectively get its act together and has five hundred years to get ready. And the I that was what got me the idea of that story, but from a Chinese perspective, um, really captured my imagination. Um, but of course the 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 catch is that doesn't happen in the first book. That's book two. So I devoured mm-hmm. book one, waiting for the like the five hundred year catch up got to the end and was like, oh, right, okay. The thing I wanted to, was really reading for is not here yet. I have to keep going. So then I picked up book two. But yeah, I think that hooked me. And also the fact it was, it's a saving the word, world story, um, but all the main characters are Chinese. And it, here, here's where me not being American gives me uh, a little bit of qualification to say it can be a wee bitty tiresome to constantly be watching these blockbusters and stories where humanity comes together to save the world but it's a humanity where like 80% of the cast are, are American um, mm-hmm. and they're just naturally happen to be in charge. Um, I, I remember I used as an example in a previous episode, the Halo video games. 
which are about humanity working together, but everyone is either a white American or uh, like a minority American. And yep. there's only in one of the Halo games where they really try to go for an international cast. Um, but that it's the exception and not the rule. So I was interested to see that being flipped. Because the interesting thing about Three Body is there is a bit of lip service to having an international cast. Like, there are American characters, there are Russian characters. The Western characters are generally assholes. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is fair enough. But it's really, it's like a, it's a, it's a flipped over version of the America Save the World story. So that that caught my interest too. But probably less so than the basic premise of 500 years to save the world. But that's just one one little cool thing about the whole series. There's all there's so much more to it than that. Yeah, it is very always it's refreshing to finally see um gigantic scale stories not from American Western point of view. Mm. Um and like I said, I think that's why the young of America um love anime so much. Right. We finally ever get to see gigantic epic scale stories that aren't about how the white guy or white woman save the universe again and again and again. Mm-hmm. It's just a different prism of like finally other people and like other ways of thinking about things. It, uh, yeah, I think we, we all need so that we can all grow. Yeah. I say in my, uh, sincerity, but sounds cliche way. Yeah. Well, I think I, I, I've said it once or twice on the show and it's half as a joke, half serious, but if there's one thing I want to do for the podcast with the podcast, apart from, you know, make myself incredibly rich and famous, it's stop the world nuking itself. Um, so that's an overdramatic statement, but like the truth is we, we live in a really interconnected world and we're living in a world where it looks like in our lifetimes, we're going to move from, uh, well, in like in my parents' lifetime, the world had two superpowers in my lifetime. It's had one and, in all likelihood, we're going to move into a, a future in the coming decades where the the word in the uh, geopolitics is multipolar. So we're going to have not one place or one country that's dominant, not even two, but probably several. So we're going to be living, like we were talking about multi-party democracies, it's going to be more unstable and we're going to probably be more and more interconnected. And if we can't get along and if we can't understand each other, we'll be stuck in a, a dark forest situation, which is mm-hmm. not a situation that really ends well for anyone. But, yeah. um, I think this is a fine idea, and I hope it works. Uh, and I almost feel like um, that's part of the reason of, for the book, even. Like, it hits so interestingly to so many different kinds of people. And... Um, so many different people, like people who don't read science fiction, are reading it. Um, I don't know. I, I I do think that might be part of his point to try to get people connected on something that's universal, like how we all should care about the cosmos, because the cosmos to me is like that astrophysics and science. It's like real life magic that happens mm. every day that we all should be in awe of, and you know, kind of find connection through mm-hmm. so that's why i love this stuff absolutely so we're getting on to the the final um sections of our of our wee chat here um and feel free to flip this one uh back on me um mm-hmm. so my first question is 
Actually, no, sorry, before I ask you a question, I'm going to do our, our word of the day. So in every episode, I try and think of like a, a Chinese word with some kind of a relevance to what we've been talking about. And I got one here. I had to look this one up. And I'm, I think it's the right synonym, the right variation of the, the, the right translation of the word. So the word I wanted to translate was warning. And after consulting with my dictionary and whatnot, the word I got in Chinese was jingao. Uh, so jingao, warning, that's our, our word of the day, because at least from, from one point of view, there's, there Three Body is a book full of warnings, be it warnings mm-hmm. just from fiction or warnings about um, things in our, in our own real world. But yeah, word of the day aside, here's a question for you. And I try and do these in every episode. If Death's End, so Death's End specifically was a drink, what kind of drink do you think it would be? It could be a soft drink or oh, alcoholic. Man. Alcoholic. Yeah, d- definitely. There's, uh, there's the Long Island iced tea of science fiction. <laughs> like, um, in Madison, we have a unfortunate massive drinking culture here. Uh, but, you know, we have our fun with it. Um, and there's a bar that re- that serves what called, we call them real things. And you get a gigantic jar and then, like, when they mix, mix up those long and iced teas, they put all manner of, like, heavy-hitting shit in there, all in one stir together. And, like, with that one jar, you know you're in for a good night with your friends. Um, that's Death's End. Like, they he pours in the heavy-hitting philosophy, crazy sci-fi, emotional heavy-hitting, and as a result of it, like, me and my friends are having the most fun talking about fiction since we've had since star wars or lord of the rings like we haven't had this much fun with a book or fiction yeah since this book so it's a it's a long and iced tea what about you perfect what do you how do you see it um i was yeah i was gonna say something similar so stupidly i didn't think of this in advance but off the top of my head yeah also something large and dark so i was thinking of like a a porter so it's it's a beer but it's probably going to be not very fizzy it's going to be very heavy, very dark, very bitter, and um, it's not something you can knock back quickly. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> I suppose that doesn't quite work, because you can power through Death's End pretty fast if it's gripping you, but you'll be digesting a lot of stuff, and you will need to lie down for a while afterwards. A lot, like if you like, drank uh, I'll go back to my Long yeah. Island iced tea uh, metaphor, where it's delicious. It, it, go, it can go down very fast, but the more you drink the more harshly drunk you'll get. So you might want to pace yourself. Yeah. I think we did a good job there. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Right. Um, Okay. So a further reading question now, Um, I think we could probably both recommend a redemption of time or AKA three body X by um, Bao Shu. Shall we talk briefly about that? Cause I feel like it's in some ways it's a companion piece to the whole trilogy, but I think also it's kind of a companion piece to, to death's end. Um. Yeah, uh, I haven't done. I've done a bonus episode on Patreon on this book, um, not on the main feed, but I did learn a few things about it. Um, so basically, he Baoshu was a huge three body nerd. He was studying in Belgium when Death's End came out. He had it was obviously out in Chinese first. He wanted to read it ASAP and uh, just so he could, you know, a bit like when Harry the Harry Potter books were coming out. Some people were trying to read them in one night. So he had no way to get it quickly. So a friend either uh, 
photographed or scanned every single page sent it to him. Damn, yeah, nerd. Uh-huh. <laughs> he devoured it really quickly, and then he was aware that a lot of people were going to write their fan fiction sequels for this book, and how he wanted to write one too, and how the you know the way the way the uh, the world of media works. It's not necessarily about how well how good the thing you write is, but also how ahead of the how do you get it out ahead of all the other ones? So he wrote it really quickly because he was aware if he didn't write the first good one, someone else would, and his would be buried. So his he, his choice to be speedy proved correct. He's ended up writing what's been approved by Liu Cixin as like the official authorized sequel or fan fan sequel. Um, so that's how the book came about. Can you describe to the listeners what it is about? Um, well, I guess we don't want to spoil too much. I, yeah, we 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 should or um, we like, we could maybe. I guess we've been spoiling. Yeah, um, we we spoiled so much so far. <laughs> if someone's listening to this, uh, I mean, like this should be an end game podcast where right. you do this today, just not to get spoiled. Because like, yeah, don't don't ruin the fun for yourself. Um, man, the third book to me is uh. It, he he calls it a paraquel. Uh, oh, yeah. Love that word. Um, you find out that Tian Ming survived, and a god being grants him pretty much unlimited power, so that he flies across the universe to find out why the universe is the shape that it is, and then eventually get revenge for humanity. So I I consider this to be uh, canon ish. Like, there's some things that I don't hold to the original trilogy. One thing that I do, um, and that is Tian Ming's uh, realization that um, he's inside a trisolarian ship. He looks up because it can see through dimensions. He looks through the ships, and they're a bunch of larvae. They're a bunch of small bug larvae people. And they're not, they're not like, well, they're not what we would consider people. They're larvae. Mm-hmm. And that blew my mind because like i've been begging for fiction to do this forever like um oh every time we have our science fiction like any aliens we run into are human based basically yeah they they're we don't they're get a lot of scale usually yeah yeah exactly especially that on our scale um versus like yeah me i, I keep on thinking like um wait if we have a something the size of the universe why why aren't there planet-sized beings uh, so I, I've always had this like idea that Jupiter itself was maybe an alien, mm. and that's why its uh, red spots always pointed in our direction because oh, no. that's actually an eye. No, don't say that. And oh. yeah, it's it's an eye, oh, and like God. we're the only thing in the solar system worth looking at. Oh, but like, yeah, like <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'll, I'll have nightmares um, for tonight, and then I'll, I'll but, be over it. Don't worry. But but yeah, you do know like the red spot. It 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 stays where it is that's always pointing toward us. I might have known that and then forgotten, but now I know. Damn. But yeah, so now we get larva aliens that can build civilizations and spaceships. Freaking love that idea. But the idea that um, one of us gets to become a god being and actually uh, take down the civilization that took us down? No, no, I don't want that. That is way too superhero, straightforward... And righteous, and I don't want that. I love the the careless unfairness of how we got taken out, 
by someone who, you know, was just cleaning up their basement, basically. He saw us as bugs and cleaned us out. And I like that. I don't want the superhero version of one of his, like, we'll I'll get them, or wait. Yeah, he helps humanity get back at that. Even Specifically the guy. Specifically the the specific alien that took us out. We, we get back at him. But uh, by the end of it, we find out um, that... God created a perfect 10-dimensional universe where all things happened at the same time. Uh, There's no distance. And I love the explanation that infinity is the same as nothing and that death creates dimensionality. Mm-hmm. Where if you have something, what I've always wanted, I want I want immortality. I want infinity. Um, yeah. But then you find out that... He's like, no, like if you already have like you want a strawberry from another galaxy, if you can have it like that, that's almost the same as not having it at all. You have all options at one time. Mm-hmm. But if you shatter the universe, the people are spread apart and have to work to get anything, now you've created meaning. And I love that idea and it almost makes me wonder about if that has any, if that's a message at all, but like how um, the powers that create our societies, if that's part of why there's so much limitations on resources, money, and whatnot to create meaning. Yeah. But yeah. Um, you might find this interesting. So I mentioned earlier, um, I, the, just earlier today, I was in that Zoom uh, gathering of the London Chinese Sci-Fi Group, and it, it was all about, well, Baoshu was there, and we are talking about one of his short stories, and the, sh- the short story, you can read it in English on the Clark's World uh, website. It's called uh, Lighthouse Girl. And it's a basically, do you know about the uh, the jellyfish that can live forever? Have you heard about that before? I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, basically the premise is, um, I won't spoil it, but um, using science fictional techniques, someone's life has been extended in theory forever using something from this jellyfish. So it's about like a human lifespan and potential immortality. And every, after we've kind of had a general discussion about the story, we can ask the, uh, the author some questions. So my question for Bao Shu was, um, you're famous for writing uh, stories that mess about with time, but this story is not about time. And I was about to go on and say, but it is about lifespan. Do you think lifespan and time are deeply connected? But before I could get to that, he's like, he said, uh, no, 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 it really is about time. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you just you just finished off my question for me. Um, so, hmm. And he said, yeah, I always write about time, even when my stories aren't directly about time. It's what I'm doing. Um, and he explained his background is philosophy. So when he was at university, he was studying philosophy. And he was looking at this philosopher, Heidegger. I don't know Heidegger very well, but I think his ideas were focused on like, human subject subjectivity. So I think the idea of Baoshu was, he, he explained when he was answering my question that the only way we can really understand time and the only way time really exists is through our um, perception. So, um, yeah, so ideas about like immortality and time for him, you can't separate the mortality and immortality and you as a being that exists in time, they can't be separated and that's a lot of what um, Redemption of Time is about, I guess, for at least. <laughs> cool. So, yeah. I 
I like I I go back and forth between hoping that someday I can talk about Shu and never ever seeing his face ever. <laughs> um, like yeah, like um, I like my distance from my gods. Mm. Uh, it, it's really fun. But then if you talk to your gods, you find out they're just people. They're just a bunch mm. of they're geeks. They're just, they're just people. And then it takes away from some of the, the grandeur and the magic of it. Yeah. What's the so, thing you can be in when you boil yourself and your thoughts down into an essay or a story, that's your mind at its best. But when you're a living, walking person having a chat, you can't always be as smart as your smartest writing. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Um... So yeah, like throughout this conversation, there's the the constant flipping coin of should I, should I ask if I can join the group? Can can I talk about you? Is he on Facebook? I don't, and, I don't know if he's on Facebook, but you can definitely um, join the the group. Uh, they what what they do? I'm, I'm talking to listeners here as well. Um, every they have a mailing list and also a WeChat group and a Twitter. And every month they have a meeting and they just send out like a Zoom invite link. Um, and once you have the invite link, you can you can join. It's not an exclusive club at all. Cool. And I'll, I'll likely, yeah. very likely join. Sweet. I'll put for listeners. I'll put um, links to the relevant places in in the show notes. Yeah. Um, that's got us onto our final question. Um, are you reading anything just now? Um. Yeah. Actually. Um. Baoshu and Season Liu, Leo, they'll always mess up. You guys reintroduced me, reminded me of my love of books. Um, yeah, uh, there's a thing, I guess there's a thing in books that movies have such a hard time matching, and that's really taking me away to another world. So, um, through him, I, uh, I actually started. I went through the the Dune audiobooks, which was uh, an experience in and of itself. I learned more about humanity and philosophy. Uh, also, using the Dune Club with Comic Book Girl Thirteen, I'd recommend if you're going to be reading Dune, go to Comic Book Girl Thirteen on YouTube. Use her book club; it'll help you digest the philosophy that's all over in Dune. Um, and then recently. Uh, I was like, hey, let me check on, like, back in the day when I was a kid, uh, where I was just consuming books and, like, religiously. Um, I was like, hey, let me look in on, like, my favorite authors of back in the day, a guy named Douglas Hill and William Slater. And um, just to see, like, I guess, like, now that I don't have to worry about the library finding the book, and I can just get anything in a snap of a finger, uh, see how they ended up. Like, what did they end up writing? And my uh my my buddy my uh my author Douglas Hill who wrote some of the greatest space opera I've ever read uh kind of turned into a crazy person and that's been kind of interesting to read ah, and right. then the last book that I got is uh House of Stairs by a guy named William Sleater um through Common Writer I I got involved with uh the people who made an American adaptation of a Common Writer TV show called Common Writer Dragon Knight. And then um, it was just so fortunate it was, and so much fun. And the main writer behind it is a guy named Nathan Long, who I also very much admire. And I posted up like how I like this book called Interstellar Pig by William Slater. And uh, my my other favorite author, Nathan Long from Comrade Dragon Knight, he's like, hey, Keith, maybe you should check this out. This book made me. So 
Uh, I'm going to be diving into uh, House of Stairs to see what this book did to influence Nathan. And then lastly, um, I love the world of John Carter. Uh, So I've been starting the first John Carter book to get back into that. And that's reminding me of like the bad motherfucker, tough guy, uh, barbarian con- uh, books mm. that I used to read with the Conan books. And now it's an intergalactic barbarian. This is amazing. So yeah, um, I got in it. The books reintroduced me to my love of books. So, uh, that's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. My, so what I, about you? What are you reading? Oh, good question. Um, I'm reading a collection of short stories right now. And uh, he, the author is American, although he is Chinese-American. It's Ted Chiang, and the book is uh, Exhalation. Um, there's two reasons why I ended up reading Ted Chiang. One is the way I first heard of him was the movie Arrival. Did you see anything about that movie, or did you did you watch the film? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. Um, it was fantastic. Mm. So that's based on a Ted Chiang uh, short story. Oh, so that's how I first nice. heard his name. But um, I've also heard him. He seems to be popular with um, Chinese uh, sci-fi writers. I'm guessing that's because he's available in translation in Chinese, and you know maybe just the benefit of having a, a Chinese name makes him makes him interesting to to the um, sci-fi fans of China. I, I don't know, but um, yeah, he's he's really fantastic, and he came up. Um, me and another guest on a previous episode used one of his uh, articles. He, he he wrote an article on BuzzFeed about um, AI. We used that as a like a starting point for a conversation. But now I'm reading an actual book by him, and is it's really good. I would love to know his thoughts on AI because I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Mm, yeah, um, I I can send you send you the link. But there's that that book, Exhalation, has. Uh, it's got a, quite a pretty long short story in it called The Life Cycle of Software Objects. And it's about like kind of like virtual e-pets. It's kind of like um, it's got weird parallels with Animal Crossing, I think, although I've never played Animal Crossing, so I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but yeah, he that's that's what I'm reading. Um, but yeah, w- what you were saying about Three Body getting you back into uh, books, that's a little bit true for me in a similar way. So I've always I've always been a reader, but when I was uh, a, a teenager, I was reading books from the what was then called the teen fiction shelf at my local bookshop. I guess it would now be called YA. Um, but the books I was reading were pretty much all uh, sci-fi and fantasy, um, maybe a little bit of some other stuff too, but mostly that. And then when I started reading, uh, like generic books, adult books, I kind of moved in a more sort of realist direction. Mm-hmm. I didn't really read anything that was just genre fiction. And I've kind of gradually came back, come back to it. Like in uh, towards the end of university, I read uh, all the Game of Thrones books. And then I read them again in, in China because I, I really wanted to revisit them. Um, but yeah, I've now kind of become a more and more interested in, in, in sci-fi thanks to Three Body. It kind of, it's, it again, kind of pinged me. So it's this Chinese genre inspired by a Western genre, and it's pinged me into reading more kind of uh, English language sci-fi as well. So, yeah, that's that's how it's affected me. Not completely different yeah, from three, the way it's affected you. So, yeah, like uh, The Death of Star Wars started me thinking about like how... It's not brand names 
that I love and sent me on my quest to figuring out and remembering why I love this kind of stuff. And Three by Problem was a master class in why I love this kind of fiction. And it got, yeah, it was kind of a, almost a geek rebirth, actually, through Three by Problem and God bless it, Stargate, which me and my friends put off watching for decades. But yeah, together, just remembering like uh, the love of like new ideas and exploration and and pushing beyond what world you normally see. Um, yeah, three by problem was uh, a blessing. Yeah, I think it's. it's I'm glad that you managed to um, get free of like the world of consuming thing, consuming um, fiction as as brands. I feel like we're kind of pushed more and more to do that. And it's, it might work for companies trying to make money and produce stuff efficiently. But I think it, it comes to a point where it doesn't work for us as consumers. You know, it has to How be much it taught me, like the, the best thing that new Star Wars taught me was that it's not about the brand name. Like yeah. what you've been following, what you've been loving all this time has not been a brand name. It's creative people. And that's what you need to follow is like, is a lesson learned back in the day when I was reading comic books. Like I thought I was a Wolverine and X-Men fan until my favorite writers left. And then it just turned mm. into garbage. And then like, I was like, Oh, so then like I'd read the new stuff that they wrote or find new writers. And then like, I'd be in love again and found that, Nope, I am not in love with X-Men or Wolverine. I'm in love with stories. And that's really deep. creative writers. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty deep. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you once again for having me on. This is take two. I, I love being real about it. Um, yeah, like we're we're actually recording like the ending of this like a couple days later. Uh, just I, I forget like my format that exists in the podcast world. So um, we can uh, go over where you can find us on the internet. So Angus, where can we find you on the internet? Okay. Well, since this is the second time, this should be nice and concise. So the podcast is hosted on Podbean and the URL is truthfic.podbean.com. That is T-R-C-H-F-I-C because that stands for the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. Just stick those words into uh, Google. You also probably can't go too wrong. You can find all the different places that you can get the show. Uh, Social media wise, there's two good places you can go. There's the podcast's official Instagram account that is at uh, Trichufic, so T R C H F I C, and I just use my own kind of Twitter for for the show as well, and that's at Angus Likes Words, and uh, it's a little bit more holistic there. It's, I generally will tweet about China related stuff, uh, if not literature. Um, but yeah, that that's pretty much all the places you can get me and uh, my show. Cool. All right. Um, you can find this pod, his podcast, and and my podcast. Uh, well, this podcast on the Couch Command podcast, where we get we're hosted at popgeeks.com. We'll be making sure that we have all of his links in our show notes. And yeah, thanks for uh, joining us. You can find me at Keith Justice on Instagram, where I post about anime and other things of darkness. So anyway, yeah. Um. Thanks again. I had a great time. Uh, I never get to be this pretentious, so it was fantastic. Uh, Angus, I look forward to talking to you again. Take it easy, man. Yeah, and I hope it's just as pretentious next time as well. So, yeah, (laughs) until then, uh, see ya. Rock on.
there we go. How good was that? I'm sure some of you people were uh, crazy enough to listen to the whole three odd hours we did there. Um, yeah, I, I think we've done all the plugs already. So what else is there to say apart from uh, all... I will try to get as many of those show uh, note links in that I promised throughout my interview with um, with Keith. If I've missed anything, just chase me up on, on the social media. So there's the Discord, the Instagram, the Twitter. All the links will be in the show notes down below. The homepage, remember, is trichafic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C dot podbean.com. Really looking forward to hearing back from people. Um, I've been dancing around doing Three Body Problem for so long, and now we've finally done it with a fan of the books which is exactly the right person you'd want I think so yeah adios zai jian